I just got this image in my head of like we fire Dave and replace him with Suppo and you have this behemoth Ooh. just sitting there at the computer like Yeah, but he wouldn't be quiet. No. Um Anyway. Okay, well before we keep talking we should just actually start the podcast. So welcome Sweet. Jeremy. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um we've actually changed the name of the podcast since oh. yeah, you're the first person on the uh the newly named Breathless Club. Okay. And why is it called yeah, that? Yeah, good question. So <laughs> The podcast was called The Heat Locker before, and the idea when we started it was, Dave, I think my gain needs to go down slightly. I don't know if we can manage. So, guys, just so you're aware, we've got, just like Rogan's got Jamie, we've got Baby Dave, one of my one of my horrible students here, and um, you'll, you'll hear us referring to him throughout the podcast. He's a horrible human. He should well and truly be in school, but... He should be at school today. Yeah, he's going to fail his HSC. Anyway, he's our, he's our sound guy and he's going to be... So anything that's incorrect when you guys are watching this, it's on him. Anyway, back to the... So the heat locker was an idea I had a few years ago. The idea was that we have a uh, sauna here. Yep. And because we always sat in there and had like good chats with people. So the idea was, well, what if we did a podcast where we just sit in there? Then you start to go, oh, but the problem is to run the heat. It's like shitty with the sound gear. And then people get kind of fucked after an hour or so and they can't do anymore. Imagine but it also bring the energy down a little bit, like after you sit in there for long enough. to die. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's, so, so the idea was good, but it just didn't, it didn't work out. Yeah. So anyway, but we just continued with the name, even though we weren't doing them in saunas. We were doing them in gyms all over the place. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I just I kind of felt like it just wasn't right anymore. So the Breathless Club is an affectionate name for the competition team here at Sydney West. The, the guys that, that are serious, that's kind of the breathless club, right? Yep. And here at, here at um, Sydney West Martial Arts, we're attached... We're, well, Penrith has one of the highest amounts of brothels of, I think, any any um, town in the country. That, that's impressive. Like, I... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, the, 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 to kind of wrap this story... The brothel that happens to be attached to the back of our building is called Breathless. You can, yeah, Breathless. Yeah, yep. go in there. Do you think? <laughs> anyway, so it was just an affectionate name, the Breathless Club, and then it's it's now uh, the name of our podcast. So you are the first person. Hopefully, you um, first person on Breathless Club. Yep. I'm not sure if you've uh, frequented Breathless. No, I haven't. Okay, that's a good answer. <laughs> Jeremy has a girlfriend. That's a that's a solid answer, Jeremy. Um, we'll see if you winked at me, Jen. We'll see it on the cameras, but um. No, there's no winking. Okay. Well, we now know why Dave isn't at school as often as he should be. Yeah, well, I've often talked to them about getting some discounts for members, but it just hasn't quite worked out. Not going to get that sponsorship. Mm. And look, it's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a commodity that's been traded for many years. I mean, it's a legitimate... Yeah, it's yeah a legitimate what thing. is it, oldest profession? They say that. I should mean, they be paying you for having that up on the screen? Like, just having, like, Breathless Club there? Like, so that way you, you, you bring in some advertising in for them. It's a good point. Yeah, anyone here that's looking, you know, that's struggling for a lady friend? I've, I've listened to uh, your previous episodes, uh, the Heat Locker episodes before. Mm. Um, I've, I'm slightly concerned because I feel like this, having me on after having, like, people like Isaac Michelle, Oliver Tarza, Frank Rosenthal, is, like, a sign of, like, a steady decline in uh, <laughs> the quality <laughs> oh, of so podcasts. From, from here, we just cancel you think afterwards. <laughs> no, mate. Look, so for those that don't, I mean, people that are listening to this, there's a good chance they know who you are. But um, for those that don't know, Jeremy is an Australian black belt. Uh, he's a black belt under Lachlan Giles, um, currently residing in Sydney. So that's why we're getting a chance to kind of yeah. reunite and, and get back to um, 
training yeah. together, I suppose. Yeah, reunite's a good word because yeah. uh, it's it's funny. Like long before I ever moved down to Absolute, you and I had I think had about five matches in Sydney across the I course of. You keep saying five. It's but it's five. It I stands out to three. me. I can't remember the other two. There, there's five, yeah. and I remember because I've lost every single one of them. Yeah, I mean, look, they were a while ago. We've often talked about this. This obviously we were both in our kind of infantile stage of our grappling. Um, you were a purple belt, I was a black belt, so Jesus, I I, I, um, I really had to win, you know. There's nothing worse. You know what it's like <laughs> now, isn't it? Like, you, you just absolutely don't want to lose to that up-and-coming stud purple belt. It's the same with rolling with Dave. I'm like, the, the amount of times that kid has nearly hill-hooked me, and I've, I've, like, even in the training room, I'm like, oh, I can't let this happen. Yeah, you just got to let your leg break. That's just the only thing you can do. Um, he's over there smiling, everyone. But he's actually—he—he <laughs> he might be the future of Australian jiu-jitsu if he can keep his shit together. But that is not a good sign of sign of the times. Mm. So anyway, um, yep. Jeremy, you're uh, not just a local black belt. You, you're actually one of our one of our best competitors. I want to say you've competed on really some big big shows. You've travelled internationally. You've competed against big names, and always done exceptionally well. Um, so I think, you know, credibility-wise, it's great to have you on. It's, we've been meaning to have a chat forever, so yeah, we'll see where this goes. But uh, welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you. Um, yeah, so it's uh, good to be on. It's uh, good to have some chats with you and, like, have it recorded because we have mm. some interesting chats just in the gym about jiu-jitsu, life, different things. Um, Normally horrible shit that people can't, shouldn't be recording. Well, yeah. From me, not from you. You're, you're a decent person. <laughs> I'm going to do my best to moderate or some... Um, our viewer base might not want to listen anymore, but yeah, we'll see. I don't want to moderate too much. Just we've got to still be, just got to be real here. Well, I guess let's kick it off with like the most recent thing that happened, which was who's number one. Um, I'm mm. still catching up on some of the matches, but like you've got some really interesting insights over, I guess like what's happened through that event, and like I guess like looking at the progression of different teams in jiu-jitsu. Um, mm. We saw uh, Damian Anderson recently against um, what's the gentleman's name, uh, the Giant Slayer. I don't know his name, but you know what? We actually have the capability. Since we have Baby Dave here, um, we're going to use this screen here in the middle just if we bring it, want to bring anything up. So, yep. Baby Dave, bring up... Um, he's going to use Flow Grappling, so bear with us, guys. There's going to be multiple, multiple advertisements here. But, uh, yeah, the, if you bring up Damien's last match um, with the tiny little man, he's, he's, his Instagram handle's the Giant Slayer, but I'm not sure what his... Um, you put in just Damien, and, uh, Damien Anderson, uh, should probably be the most recent one. Yeah, this... Um, so, J- Damien's... Uh, I trained with Damien a fair bit at Henzo's. Yeah. Damien... I want to know, was he a purple belt when I was there or was he a blue belt? I think he might have even still been a blue belt when I first went to Henzo's. And he was always good. Like, good where him and I would have tough rounds. And I've always... You know, I remember always thinking, Jesus Christ, like... How much do I suck? I'm going over here and these blue and purple belts from from Danaher's team are just as good as me or, or, or better. Like, I'm just hanging in here. Um, and he was one of those guys, you know. I always knew he was going to be... Yeah. Like, like the, I think from the... Like, I only heard his name, like, maybe two years ago. Like, like I'd only heard it, I think, maybe, like, in some stuff related to, like, you know, the team going out of Puerto Rico. And I was like, oh, I don't really know who this guy is. Like, you see, like, a lot of, like, you know, purple belts and things on the way up. But uh, I think, like, I saw his, like, first match shortly after that. Like, or at least, like, the first match that I saw of him. And I was like, oh, no, 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 this kid's legit. Mm. And he's 
very sharply just like rising through the ranks and he, he's taking out some big names which is uh really cool to see well he's got uh he's known for his outside heel hook he's yeah. his outside heel because he's very good i've heard he is the master of outside ashy as well mm. um he is good from there which is it's funny you and i both probably if someone was gonna uh put us into a pigeonhole it would be we'd be leg lockers i suppose and um, outside heel hawks are more... Di- even though they're the kind of the first thing we show people, they're actually, against a skilled opponent, they can be quite difficult to execute. Yeah, uh, like, I think we've even talked about, like, uh, sort of the what would consider to be the fundamental sequence of an outside heel hook, that idea of, like, you know, uh, inside leg positioning uh, to force heel exposure into outside leg positioning. Important fundamental sequence that, like, teaches, like, a lot of really important skills, but it's also sort of, like, the last one that you really master mm. um, because... Th- because of so much, so many transitions through the sequence, there's a lot more that can go wrong. But at the same time, it's good to teach it to white belts because they start thinking about, well, maybe not white belts, but like white belt level teach leg lockers. Mate. Teach those white belts, <laughs> get them all. But it illustrates sort of like the right ideas behind what we're trying to achieve uh, with leg locks and leg positioning. Mm. Um, yeah, but it's just, it's like in drilling, you can get it and you go, oh, that really hurts. But then you go against someone who really wants to rotate hard, straighten their foot. Maybe they're mm-hmm. flexible in the in the ankles and hips. So, to be someone like Damien, who how'd you go, Dave? Did you find him? I mean, you, you don't even have it on the screen anymore. <laughs> so, is it? I think it's the most recent one. Oh, actually no, because they just had that. Oh, okay, uh, so he EG had another event. match. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about that. He had another match. Also, guys, sorry, it seems to be every bus in Penrith is outside my window right now. Um, eventually, I'd like to actually get where I've got a studio. It would be the best case, but I'm hoping it's not going to deter from our conversation too much. But you know. This is real life. There's cars outside. We'll work with what we've got. Exactly right. Um, look, so our baby Dave is uh, failing. You know, Jamie on the Rogan podcast is, you know, the, everyone talks about him being the king of Googling. This kid, he's got nothing else to do with his whole life except be on the internet. Can't well, I, even find a jiu-jitsu match. But. I think he even started off by spelling Damien's name incorrectly. Oh, yeah. He can't spell. Yeah. This is another thing. I mean, we've even seen Dave misspell his own name. Yeah. Like, like just, yeah. This is the future. Look, it doesn't matter, Dave. You, it's, don't stress, mate. It's not too bad. Look, it was good. The, the match itself was was good. Um, there was obviously a, a size disparity, but that guy, yeah. I think, tends to go in a lot of matches where he's probably undersized. He's yeah. it's like, is he actually a midget? I mean, there's got to be a size where is midget the word? What's the what's the appropriate I, I, word? I don't know. I don't want to get cancelled. I, I don't want to get cancelled. I'm like... happy to be cancelled. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what the official dwarf. I think um, dwarfism is very specific because right. it's uh, it's it's to do with a, like it's relative between height and limb limb size. Okay, I I think it's so he might be a dwarf. He might be. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's kind of cool to say I'm a dwarf. I mean, it might be annoying when you want to go on roller coasters and stuff, but. But yeah, uh, I, I wanted to go back to a point you were making about the outside hill because uh, I, I think it's it's there's a lot that you can like unpack there about probably jujitsu in general. We were talking about you know you can drill outside heel hooks and then you know applying them in uh, training, but then taking that from training and successfully applying applying it in training to like true breaking pressure in competition, mm-hmm. it, it seems like that's almost like the eternal struggle. Um, is just like trying to take things that theoretically work to like actually finding success in competition with those techniques. Like you see it a lot with an outside heel. It's like even when you do get breaking pressure, like you've got like a strong bite, elevated heel, it's connected to your chest. If it breaks in the wrong way, you get a heel slip straight away. Like if it, you get like a crack at the ankle instead and it like mm-hmm. loosens up and slips. Yep. And I, I yeah, I, I think just, yeah, on the topic of the outside heel, I think like that's like an interesting sort of 
eternal problem to have in jiu-jitsu because then you got to like start working from there and you're like okay well like let's start talking about like sustained breaking and then you know then you start applying that to i guess the rest of jiu-jitsu don't know if you have any thoughts on that there or if that yeah i mean specifically with the outside heel because you've got to get internal knee rotation initially so you can actually get the heel or, or at least neutral knee position if the knee's totally turned out you just won't get the heel. So let's say now I've got the heel. If I cause too much internal knee rotation, now I'm kind of bringing my braking pressure into the front of the kneecap, whereas mm-hmm. I need to externally rotate that bent knee. I think there's a lot of components to it that people probably have never really explained correctly. So people don't understand yeah. the mechanics of what they're actually trying to do. They're just kind of being told, hook the heel, drive your hips in, and you're probably going to get something happen. And, and I think like exactly, like exactly what you're talking about in terms of, uh, I guess, you know, substandard coaching on an outside hill is mm-hmm. that it's a lot of people that have never tried to apply one in competition. They don't have real-world experience. It's, yeah, like, like, I mean, like there's, there's a lot, lot of, of that going on. Yeah. As jiu-jitsu becomes more popular, more people do it. If more people are doing it, there's more people that go, oh, you know what, I could be a coach. I, I like telling people stuff and, and I like being the guy in the front of the room. I mean, we've all seen this before. Uh, you and I hold ourselves to a very high standard for our coaching, but there's a lot of people who just want to be the guy at the front of the room. A, a lot of guys that are trying to LARP into being like a John Danaher, and and there's almost, I, I think John Danaher, fantastic coach at jiu-jitsu. Um, the, the problem is, is people wanting to be him have also taken the other aspects of John Danaher and gone like, oh, I'm going to do that too, which is... Murdering hookers? Well, I was I was going to say more along the lines of like not rolling, like, oh, gotcha. but like he's Sorry. got like an actual yep. reason to like not roll. He's got like a, you know, a serious hip issue, a knee issue. But then I think you're going to see a lot of other coaches that go, mm. oh, that's the easy route. I can just sit on the side yeah. and then just tell people what to do without actually having any experience. But you're talking about someone that's, you know, been coaching for 30 years in jiu-jitsu and he's got many many years of rolling leading up to that point it's only a relatively recent thing i believe that he wasn't rolling and wasn't training but he still has an understanding of i guess like what real world jiu-jitsu is meant to be like well he has he has that magic word that you need to have which is credibility yeah if you haven't got credibility really in any venture like the first thing i want to see if somebody's going to explain something or show something to me i want i want to know why are you the person I should listen to? Mm. So John gained credibility via, you know, I mean, his coaching spoke for itself just with George St. Pierre, just with like the fact he was at Hen- Henzo had such credibility in the game. So just being a very early day Henzo black belt, yeah. you know, there was, he just had so many layers of credibility. Yeah. That and he was surrounded by those people, like other people like Matt Serra, like, like, <coughs> like Dante uh, Riviera, um, like, even like I guess like later days like Tom DeBlas like just like so many people surrounded him that really sort of I guess like fed into John's credibility and like he got to see a lot of like different aspects of real world grappling MMA like you know just various martial arts and consumes mm. himself with it well yeah he, he's a special species Danaher I'm not sure what he is and I'm not convinced he's the same as us because lizard person he's a br- he's a brilliant guy he's, he's unreal uh, you know I as far as this being my craft and, and something that I do with my life, um, he's right at the top of who I kind of look towards. So, you know, he's just phenomenal. But, yeah, he's got credibility. He can he can get away with not training because even in not training, he can still... He still seems to continually produce the right coaching goods. Um, we've seen so many of these other guys that they never... They barely rolled at the best of times. And if they did, it was like with a little white belt or you know, someone they knew they could get it over. Um, 
because of that that ego thing. It's like, oh, what if I get tapped? And what? I mean, I get, I get tapped by I get tapped by guys in my training room. But for me, if if I know I'm good and I'm getting tapped by my students, I mean, that's like the ultimate. Um, that, that's the validation, goal. right? It yeah. validates what we're doing to yeah. an extent. Like, well, like it, you see this a lot with a lot of I think high level competitors that move over into coaching where they're good competitors but they don't become good coaches and then a good coach should be basically elevating their students like above themselves mm-hmm. and trying to like push them like past the successes that they had if you're not doing that like it's either because you don't actually want to help those people or because you don't have the ability to mm-hmm. um and i feel like we see a lot of that uh in jiu-jitsu as well like a lot of guys that are good at jiu-jitsu and don't quite understand like why they're good and yeah. they just go on to be average coaches and like the fact that they were these high level competitors means very little when you know for like i guess their ability to be a good coach yeah the two are not necessarily related to each other being um being able to impart knowledge and being able to physically do something especially in a physically demanding sport sometimes they can be really divorced from each other and you see it a lot you see you see and this is the thing like guys um guys come out and do seminars right i mean for years remember for years like there was a parade of Brazilians, for instance, that would come out and it was like, he's a 10-time world champion and, and it was just everyone had to bow down and you just pay him his $150. He rocks up with the cinema late and drunk and, you know, spits you out some random... I mean, you've been to them, I've been to them. Um, you know, make you do push-ups for half an hour and, and you kind of finish up going, oh, I, you know, I got a photo with him, I got to say hello, but, you know, you, you didn't really have that much knowledge imparted. And then there could be some guy who wasn't that world champion, but his ability to transfer information to you is yeah. is phenomenal. And that's, I suppose, what you've got to look for in a, in a coach um, more than just the accolades. Now, definitely, if your coach has never competed or never even been around anything high level, I suppose then it comes back to that, how did he get his credibility? Um, normally, you don't see a random guy that never did anything at all and then he's got really high-level students. That's there seems to be a certain disparity there. That's not always the case. But yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting topic. I mean, we could talk all day on crap coaches. Oh but, yeah, know. like yeah, exactly. The list of crap coaches <laughs> is tremendously longer than the list of good coaches. And I think there might be people listening as well that they're like, yeah, like I agree with that. And then, the, but they've got like their list of like in their head of good coaches. I'd take that list of like good coaches that I think most people like have probably halve that at the very least like mm. like there's a lot of people that have credit as being good coaches that have achieved very very little and like like as coaches they they yeah. don't really impart any wisdom they kind of just like so what's your advice then let's say i'm a i'm a white belt or blue belt i'm starting out and because here's what happens to people they just go to their local school they're like i, I kind of like martial arts or i like the ufc they look up jujitsu they go to the nearest spot and they they go down there and the guy can ragdoll them because maybe he's just done a bit more and he's what it, maybe he's a bigger guy. And they just go, my coach is phenomenal. He's unreal. And we've seen that time and time again. How do we gear up these people who are maybe newer in the game to actually, what, is, what should their checklist, because it can't just be accolades and it can't, like, what is it their checklist should be yeah. looking for? So, so uh, on that, like, I'll, I'll give a more direct answer in just a second. Um, but when I was coming up in jiu-jitsu, um, I was very fortunate when I came up under Luke Best and, um, he um, was very encouraging. The ultimate of, troll of the internet, right? The ultimate troll of the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, blue belts live in fear. <laughs> um, but he was very encouraging. He was like, you know, he, he's a true martial arts nerd. And he was really, like, uh, encouraging the idea of, like, like look to every other source. Like, try and, like, draw everything in as much as possible. Like, try and, like, study every high-level competitor 
take from them what you can. He, he had no ego about that sort of thing. Um, and so he, when leg locks were coming along, he was just like, yeah, get straight into it. Like, oh, I, cool. I'm all for it. He, he didn't hold back on it um, at the time because I think because of the state of leg locks when uh, I wanted to start doing them about 2015, his policy in the gym at the time was like, okay, we don't do heel hooks. But when, like, people started showing interest in them, like, and I was like, I blew out at the time. I'm like, hey, I want to start learning heel hooks. He's like, okay, like, let's just start adding them in. Um, and with it's very that, open-minded. Yeah, like super open-minded for the time. Like no other gym was really allowing that sort of thing um, or, or even just like, you know, had sort of that check on their own ego to be, um, you know, sort of like the white belt on that sort of topic and like let mm. like admit to their own inexperience in that particular area. Um, and so the approach I took at the time, and I think this is a good approach even now, like it's still the approach I take, is I look to competition footage first. Um, there's a lot of instructionals out there. Like, I have an instructional, like, and I think that the content... Jeremy, where could people buy that instructional? Uh, Technically.com, uh, spelled oh. uh, T-E-C-H-N-I-Q-L-Y. Uh, I'm worried that baby Dave definitely couldn't spell that. Dave, bring it up on the screen, mate. Let's bring up Jeremy's thing. Sorry, keep talking, Jeremy, but the, <laughs> uh, good luck with that, Dave. But anyway... Let's we'll, see how he yeah. goes. Even if you just type in, like, Jeremy Skinner instructional... Oh, perfect. He nailed it, I think. Oh, yeah, well, he probably thinks that's how it's spelled properly. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so I had this instructional and, like, I put on there, like, techniques that I use regularly um, and, like, techniques that I have a lot of confidence in. But I'd say, like, it's hard to sift through, uh, essentially sift through the shit. Like, like there's yep. a lot of material out there, also on YouTube as well, like a lot of free material. And you have no way of really knowing what's good. Even if it's a high-level competitor, this material they put out might not necessarily be what they oh, do. Jeremy, look at this. Fundamental leg entanglements, escapes, and heel hooks by Jeremy Skinner. This looks nice. Buy with PayPal. 30 pounds. It's a British... Uh, what's that in Australian? Like a million dollars? What's that worth it to be? Um, I think the exchange... Oh, what's the exchange at the moment? I can't tell with the whole world having gone to shit, but... We'll, we'll buy that later on and we'll support you, Jeremy. I, you. I don't want to give Dave my uh, internet details. Or else he'll probably <laughs> put them out for everyone will know it, but... Nice work, Dave. Good. Congratulations there, mate. Sorry. Yeah. No, all good. Uh, so there's a lot of high-level competitors that will put out instructionals or, like, just put out material out there, and it's not actually what they, they what they do. I think there's even, like, a lot of high-level competitors, like, as we talked about, that don't make good coaches. They have a certain idea of what they think they do, but what they do in practice is totally different. Mm. Um, so I think the best approach to take would be to, to watch competition footage and look at what they actually do in competition, then work back from there. Would you say your average guy that's starting out though can look at a match and appreciate the nuances of what's happening as far as he, he you know he placed his hand here he caused this reaction you, you know what i'm saying with that yeah um when i was a white belt like i was studying the meow brothers and it definitely majority of it like 99 percent of what happened in the match and like the important details uh went over my head what i would say starting out is pick one competitor and then look for trends so instead of trying to watch one match and be like oh this is what happened watch all of their matches and try and identify with like the key situations they end up in consistently and look for repetition look for trends and then work back from there like you know every single time like you know this competitor gets to here he's gripping the arm in a certain way what is he doing first when the when his opponent isn't really doing anything to defend and then start looking at like what are the common reactions he might get when he gets to that position and I'd also try and probably start from more fixed positions like things like the back uh, mount half guard rather than you know, uh, chaotic, scrambly sort of positions, like open, open guard, guard stuff, yeah. exactly, open guard, any sort of wrestling situation, like turtle attacks. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think you can definitely study those positions, but I think starting out, if you have no experience at all, like it's like there's just too much going on. It's going to be hard to identify the key details of what they're looking for. But I think you can start out with like, yeah, slower positions, look for trends. Um, and then you can start expanding out to looking at uh, their teammates. Are their teammates doing the same thing from those positions? If that if they are looking at doing the same things from those positions, then it tells you that they've got like a system in place. And then you can even start looking at their instructionals, I'd say. Like I think the greatest example of that is... Uh, the, the Danaher Desk Squad. Mm. All of those former guys are on this. De- former Danaher former Desk Dan- Squad. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's shrunk now. <laughs> but, but like, looking at what that team does, because you watch them all compete, they all do almost the same thing from mm. each of those positions. They have preferences over, like, you know, which particular guard they play. But from each of those guards, each of those, like, dominant, like, you know, submissions, uh, they, they all do a very similar thing. And you can start looking at trends across the team. They tend to have a, a core group of skills that has been... And, and I make no... Um, like I coach very similar to how John or I try to coach very similar to how John does in, in the way that I look at and go John has set out pretty clearly what he thinks are the highest percentage techniques from all the specific, specific positions and um, he kind of makes sure all his students are across understanding those concepts and then they kind of you know, could it just be their personality? They might be more outgoing. They might be more, depending on which way they go with it. And it seems to be a good strategy. Um, yeah. So yeah, what you're saying makes makes exact sense. So I mean, that being the case, if I if someone comes to me and says, oh, I want to get an instructional," I would generally lead them towards John just because I know he's going to explain things as a kind of whole concept rather than just he's a move. And now some people like to just turn it on and see a move and copy the move, but I feel like. If you can give people the tools, it's kind of like, do you want to teach them how to fish or do you just want to put the yeah. line in their hand and tell them to chuck it in the water? Like, You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and that's exactly why I think like competition footage is the way to go because then you, you have to essentially put your thinking cap on and actually yeah. st- try and like understand what's happening. I, I think getting spoon-fed the instructionals, you actually do see this with certain competitors. Um, when it becomes their turn to start teaching, they don't have the tools to... like talk about their thought process um break down what's actually going on they can only show you the steps to a technique um i this is something it's that copy, i copycating exactly like this yeah. is something i go through with my students like i even had a conversation recently with one student where like every single time he comes to me with questions and like i think questions are fantastic but the the problem was is that he'd ask me first before trying to solve the issue himself mm. i, I th- like it can be he solves the issue himself and then he like even if he feels like he comes up with a suitable answer and then comes me comes to me that's fine i still would like to see my students think for themselves try and solve the problems and then like you know if, whether they do or they don't solve the issue like then they can come talk to me about it only because i want them to be able to actually be thinking about jujitsu like i could easily just give i, I feel like easily give them the answer to the problem but there's other there's other things that I'd like them to learn, not just like you know the answer to the question. That well, there's te- greater teach, skills. You teach him the fish, right? You yeah, teach, you, exactly. You, yeah, you're trying to get him to think. Yeah, I think that's, and I think that's definitely the kind of next evolution of, of better coaching, rather than just here's a move to it. Now, I suppose then what we need to consider is that in a room full of individuals, some are just coming along. They want a bit of fun. They want to learn yeah. this jujitsu stuff. Just show me like where do I put my hand. And then there's the people like you and I and Baby and the, the other guys that are like, okay, I'm, I want to know that next detail, that why are we doing this? And so I yeah. suppose it depends on the individual too. For yeah. sure, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, um, we were talking about that who's number one card. Did you watch Gordon and Philly Fresh? Yes, I did. Philly, I, bro. That, that's a match where I have to go back multiple times to, it was to an rewatch. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was just so much to unpack on that. I think like any 
good competitor, you need to watch uh, their match a few times to unpack what's happened. But that one in particular, there was just so much happening. It was it was 20 minutes, like, su- submission after submission yeah, 15, after submission, yeah. like, escapes. Oh, 15 minutes, my bad. I would um, like 20 minutes. We would have got more oh, of it, but yeah. I actually, um, because I watched the replay of it, like, when I looked it up on Flow Grappling, it said 30 bring, minutes. Uh, and bring I, it up, Dave. Bring the match up. I'm not sure if we can run it. I, I don't know if my YouTube following is so small that it won't be an issue we'll see what happens um leave leave jeremy's thing up there you go back to flow and um bring up that dave so it was an exhibition and um it's funny like gordon draws a lot of a lot of uh attention i should say both good and bad yeah and um i think he's fine with all of it and i think all of it just pushes him to be a bigger bigger brand and jiu-jitsu to be more important more popular so i'm gordon's one of the better things that's happened to jiu-jitsu, if we're going to be brutally honest, I think so. Whether you like him or not is irrelevant, but the amount of eyes that, that they gets... That's, I mean, look at him. He's dressing like a cowboy. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, I, it looks like he's worn that same outfit, I think, a week straight now. He wore it to the worlds, but uh, maybe cowboys wear... One, I mean, you got to think you're out on the ranch. You just wear the one. You're not going to change every... You know what I mean? It's a real cowboy. What happened, Dave? Not working? I know, it's working. Okay. Um... You skip ahead about five minutes in. That's when the action starts. Yeah. Did you manage to get past the ads, did you? So they reckon Gordon was about 240. He came in pretty, pretty big. Very heavy. Yeah. I mean, looks thick. I he, wish I could get that heavy because... Imagine you were 240, Jeremy. Oh, I wouldn't want to train with you. I, I wouldn't need to train. It's okay. Like, at that weight, like, no one knows jiu-jitsu at that weight except for Gordon. It's a fair statement. <laughs> Are you uh, denying that Tim Spriggs is the champion of the world? Um... He's a champion of the world. He's the champion of the world he, right now. Like, well, who's number one built anyway? Yeah. I mean, like he 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 fits the criteria of world champion, like the champion of the world. I don't think he necessarily has to do a lot of jujitsu to achieve yeah. that. I but mean, it's um, are you pausing it, Dave? Or what's happening? Do you want me to play it? I don't know. You can just let it play. I don't, I don't okay. see why not. People people might be. Um, I mean, this is both a favorite entry by you and I, Jeremy. The the backstep entry when they sit to a hip from a butterfly half it's just it's just rock solid absolutely yeah. rock solid it, like I did a breakdown of that on uh, YouTube recently like what's your Instagram? Uh, Jeremy Paul Skinner Jeremy Paul Skinner okay just make sure you guys are following just went with the uh, the full name the, the, the uh, triple barrel that's your middle name? yeah my middle name's Paul also oh nice there you go <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with that information but like it, it, it's nice to have it I guess I'm picturing the stepbrothers um uh, do we just become best friends? Can, we, do you want to go do karate in the garage? <laughs> we can do karate later on tonight, actually. <laughs> he tapped him. So Gordon tapped him pretty quick. I think he just did that to be like, look, I can I can put you away kind of early. Yeah. And then he just, just played around a bit. Because I, th- I think like you see this with, like say, for example, the Floyd Mayweather match uh, with uh, Conor McGregor. Like they, that went until, what was it, the Ten. 11th? Yeah, yeah, 10 or 11, yeah. Like late into the match. And like I, I think like Floyd could have finished off McGregor early on. Um, and that's sort of like the thing that people hold on to. Uh, the, the McGregor fans is, oh, but he survived 10 rounds. And it's like, yeah, but like, mm. did he really though? Like like he could have easily been taken out in the first round, I think. I think anyone that does jiu-jitsu probably knew that if Gordon didn't submit him at all, it was because he chose to. But yeah. you know what? Some people don't. And I've talked about this before, and I'm, I think we've talked about it. A lot of people don't understand. You and I understand the levels of jiu-jitsu because we've been in the game now for a while. We've also competed at a good level, but also trained with a lot of the actual very best. Um, yeah. 
So you really, it's good. You kind of really learn where you fit in the pecking order. And um, I think that's a healthy thing. I think some yeah. people never actually know. Even some coaches, I think they actually don't know where they fit. And I think the more they're removed from it, the less they understand where they fit and where everyone else is. Yeah, like like it's exactly what we were talking about before with coaches that are just going to be sitting off to the side. They don't ever really train. Or even just people that have only ever trained at their gym. They go, like they have the guy in their gym that's like maybe the black belt, like... And, and he's, you know, he beats up on everyone there. Like, maybe he is the coach that does roll, but, and he bashes everyone there. But, like, they have no idea, like, how far down in the pecking order that mm. their coach actually is. Yeah. And, and just... Well, he might not know either. He might if not, you, yeah. you've ever been exposed to that, like, it, I always knew I wasn't the best in the world. But I always... For Australian grappling, I was doing okay just on the local tournaments. For submission grappling, I was doing as good as I could. And I went to New York... And I remember in, at Henzo's going with... I remember a day, a day going with Nick Ronan. He was a purple belt. Nick, at this stage, nobody knew who Nick Ronan was. And I turned with Nick. And on the back, he submitted me two two times in a five-minute round or something. And it was yeah. like... It was like I didn't know jiu-jitsu. Mm. And I was like, the fuck? Like, this is this does... And, and you kind of get a, a feel. Now, many years later, I've bridged the skill gap, obviously, as I've immersed myself in that. But it gives you a really good idea on where you fit. And I've trained with yeah. Gordon. I've spent multiple rounds with Gordon and uh, it's just he's, he's from my understanding he's the best ever and he's shown it in a, in a competition setting too and he makes it look so easy yeah. too and and I think that's part of the reason why that people don't know um, like I guess like how good Gordon really is is when he competes it doesn't look like he's doing anything all that different doesn't look like he's doing any, doing anything all that crazy either mm. he, his jiu-jitsu looks very simple it's like just like what people would say about Hodger yeah. but I guess he's doesn't get the same level of respect as Hodger. Mm. Like, people really, like, talk about, you know, how uh, fundamentally sound Hodger is and how he's got a relatively simple-looking game, but he's just applying it with, like, such sophistication. That's right, Dave. You can cut that. But I don't know whether we're allowed to put the whole thing on it. I don't know how that works. Um, you're exactly right. And I, I still feel the reason a lot of people give Hodger that respect is because he, he trained in the gi and he won world mm. championships in the gi. And, I mean, you and I, I, I this is a... You know, a good segue to maybe talk about that. Um, you and I definitely favour no gi. At my academy, there's only gi classes in fundamentals. I, I start them out. They don't, they, don't, they don't even have to. If people want to go straight to no gi, they can. Yep. But our fundamental sessions are in the gi. And, and who knows, over time, I may even adjust that. But all the rest of my classes are all no gi because that's what... One is that's what I enjoy. It's what I enjoy teaching. And it also seems to be what a lot of people enjoy also. Yeah. A lot of people just never got the option because they went to do jiu-jitsu and the only thing they were presented with was gi jiu-jitsu. And then like a little party class once a week where it's, oh, you can, we do no gi. And it was kind of just, we weren't being specifically taught no gi skills. You were just doing your gi game kind of without the gi. And we went from there. But um, I feel like there's more of a division than ever before. I mean, I think you're mm. the same as me. If you never put a gi on again, you're probably not overly unhappy. Yeah. Like it, I, at this stage for me, the gi is like this nice little interesting costume that's like, a throwback it's cute isn't it yeah exactly it's like um, halloween but there's such a di- like there's such a divide now between where gi and no gi jiu-jitsu is it's almost like a shame that we still call no gi jiu-jitsu like i i like i think and that might be part of the issue is the fact that we 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 attribute the same name to it when it's a completely different thing mm. like no one says that judo and wrestling is the same sport mm-hmm. and that like 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 if you look at the rule sets it's like the the difference isn't isn't just like oh one's you know wrestling with a gi on and one's wrestling without a gi on it's like they're, they're two completely different sports and i think the same applies for you know submission grappling versus uh jiu-jitsu yeah 
Like, I, I think there's just such a massive divide there um, at competition level, like, like that it's disingenuous to say that they're the same thing. And, and this was an argument that I had with my one of my, one of my first coaches. Um, some, the, the two guys that gave me my black belt were Anthony Perosh and Elvis Sinisi. And um, you, know, you were saying Luke Beston was, was quite good with being fairly open-minded. And I always felt like Elvis was like that. And Anthony was very specific on what he wanted from jiu-jitsu and, and for us as students to do. And I remember running into a lot of um, pushback from Anthony when I was wanting to focus on some leg locking and things. And he, um, he always used to say to me, he said, Luke, all the ADCC champions are also gi champions. And I always thought, yeah, I don't. I, I understand that's maybe what the data's showing, but it, at this stage, it's just because they were the guys who were the professional yeah. athletes, and there wasn't this other group of people. So the best in the gi just took the gi off, and they were still just better grapplers than the other guys were. Yeah. Now we've seen a complete shift where there's professionals in no gi grappling who just literally don't put a gi on, and then there's the the other side of it, you know. Like I, I completely agree with uh, your thoughts on that. I, I the in- the analogy I sort of, well, sort of an analogy, but like, like, is that if judo, for example, decided to come along with like a judo rule set where they just took the gear off, but it's the same thing. Um, it wasn't wrestling. You still had to adopt like, you know, the upright posture. They had the exact same stalling calls. You would generally see very early days that the only people that would be winning this no gi judo rule set would be the, the gi judo competitors until eventually you know, the, the sort of like the, the training for uh, this no-gi rule set sort of like came out of its infancy and started developing sort of uh, its own training, you'd start to see like the gi competitors lose and then eventually the no-gi competitors take over. And I think it's the same with jiu-jitsu that for the longest time, since it's such a niche rule set, so different to the other types of grappling, that when majority of the people that are doing the sport are going to be training the gi, they're the only ones that are getting the funding to actually be able to train full-time, that they're going to be the ones that are going to dominate uh, at the highest levels. Mm. How long till no gi judo just became wrestling? Well, so that's another <laughs> thing. That's why it's not a, exactly a perfect uh, sort of explanation Analogy, for it. Yeah, but uh, I see. I really like judo. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's fantastic, and I think the concepts of kazushi and off balancing and foot yeah. sweeps, and I think there's so many skills that carry over to to grappling. I think for a long time, a lot of us didn't appreciate that enough. If you were a gi player. I think you really would want to nearly be a black belt in judo as well. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny because uh, for the longest time, um, a lot of jiu-jitsu black belts were also judo black belts. Like Hodger, for example, judo mm. black belt. A lot of the Gracies um, earlier days were all judo black belts and like trained judo as well. I have to wonder how, because you know what it's like, because there is a degree of crossover, I wonder how many were black belts in jiu-jitsu and then the judo coach comes in and he's like, look, these guys are better than... And they just kind of, before you know it, they're just given a black belt. But... Yeah. Um, I'm not saying they're not dual black belts, but I wonder how many of them were kind of... He was already a good grappler and they kind of bumped him into being a black belt quicker than just someone that just started from scratch doing judo. And Same with like if a judo black belt like came into jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu just get bumped to blue belt straight away. You see yeah. it, yeah. And, it, and look, they're two different things, but yeah, judo's fantastic. I think people should... If people are out there are looking for things to study, I think understanding off-balances and, and sweeps, I think um, there's also a bunch of like low-risk um, options like Hosodagaris and things you can use that are a high, high reward and very low risk. You, yeah. don't, you don't always have to just be shooting doubles and singles. Yeah, um, it, I, I think judo as well, it's really interesting because it seems to have a better te- like curriculum in terms of bringing new people into, into the sport and like there's like a, there's a, seems like there's a better curriculum for taking people through to black belt level that are 
wrestling and jiu-jitsu don't have. I, I think jiu-jitsu's getting there. I, I think it's sort of stagnated a little bit, but uh, judo seems to have, like, a interesting approach. Like, obviously, it changes with, like, different competitors, but, like, if you watch uh, the way Travis Stevens breaks down, it's like, you know, that idea of, like, you know, the, the four corners, like, to off-balance someone. Um, I I feel like we don't see that sort of uh, thing in jiu-jitsu uh, or wrestling. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, well, that's, it's that concept of kazushi. It's such yeah. a integral part of... Mm. Uh, judo I've, I've got an old judo book and um, it was like one of the initial judo books written in Japan many years ago and uh, I love it it still holds it still holds true a lot of it doesn't change how to off balance someone doesn't really change like mm. we're seeing a lot of innovation in um, in what we do but it's like they kind of pretty much worked out like this is how yeah. I can off balance someone if you force them towards this corner or this direction and the, the only real changes in judo seem to come from rules at this stage yeah. like I think one of the major ones relatively recently um, was the the changes in grip breaking in judo they can now only grip break with one hand I was actually asking Keller about this recently I, I can't remember the name of the throw but it's a double sleeve throw um, where you start almost going in on a Sayonagi um, Seisa or something, something like that it's, it's, like not, a, it's not a Sayonagi uh, no, it's, it's not, not a Ippon Sayonagi. It's, it's got a different name. And I remember only seeing that like within the last couple of years uh, in judo. And I was like, well, I can't imagine that they've just come up with a new throw. So I, I asked Keller about it. And I, um, Keller's the, rule, a, the rules were dictating it. Yeah. And he said, yeah, it's just a pure rule change. Um, basically, it's it, the, the grips you take for that throw um, are very difficult to break without using two hands. Like it's, it's very tough to break that with a, with just one hand. And that's why you suddenly see like it, it's a... Mm. Uh, emergence in the sport or, or just at least it's it's rise in popularity um, i think judo as a sport sucks i think judo as a martial art is awesome judo as a sport sucks if you understand the, the yeah. rules like well that's why i say as a sport like when i mm. say a sport i mean the rules you compete under if you wanted to do judo i think they suck um yeah. you, you only have to watch the olympics for a bit and you go oh, this is they, they they're nearly taking the life out of what is really a fantastic martial art yeah um, and that's only a, yeah. like like it seems like it's only really gone that route in the last ten years because I, I was listening to Travis Stevens uh, recently on the Lex Friedman he was even talking about you know, I think it was like 2011 like being able to still do leg grabs and like hitting like a double leg during a judo match and I was like hmm. why did that go away like really neutering the sport yeah. and and I mean I have to I have to think was it was it to stop wrestlers coming in just shooting doubles I don't know like I mean hmm. normally it's it's for a reason. Well, I think that's part of the reason why they you weren't allowed to grab like double collar anymore because like guys would just be able to basically go double collar and just like sag. Mm. It, it's and it makes it actually hard then like when you want to start taking things from judo to apply it to jiu-jitsu because you're like, well, is this only working because of a specific rule change? Like exactly you right. have to go back and almost it's almost you're almost better off watching older judo matches mm. and drawing from them when they had a lot more freedom in what they could do. That's a good point. Which is sort of backwards in what you think. Uh, martial arts should be like every new like every should new generation evolution that yeah. gets better yeah every year the 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 judo, the judo the wrestling you see should get better and better and better but um it seems like with judo that's not really the case unfortunately well the, the rules dictate the martial art unfortunately and that's the thing with jiu-jitsu as well um for a long time the ibjjf were the the only body that people kind of look to as the the actual legitimate body and mm. i mean still probably to a degree and as we've often talked about, their their rule sets are pretty funky. There's some things that we absolutely ha- haven't agreed on. Um, and it's only really, was it last year or this year, they, they changed the reaping rule at, at the yeah. higher levels at Brown and Black Belt? I think it was only like, I, I think they announced it last year and it only took place this year that they actually started allowing heel hooks. Yeah, I mean, you and I probably are on the, of the same mindset on this. I think the reaping rule in jiu-jitsu is 
idiotic. I think it's absolutely idiotic. That mm. What they, I've seen people teach. You put your leg here. This is very dangerous. I've heard them say that to students. This is very, very dangerous. Yet it's the same guy who who will coach someone to jump guard. Yeah, and I think jumping guard causes m- heaps more catastrophic injuries. Uh, yeah. If you understand the way a reap works, and if your students learn from day one, don't just if your leg's got a big bend in it, don't just aggressively straighten and turn into it. If that person learns that. Yeah. They're gonna have no problems with reaps. Like, there's, like, like, take my word. Like, like this is this, like what I say to people. It's like, take my word for it. I put a lot of effort into trying to break people's legs. You're not gonna accidentally break someone's leg with a reap. It's like, because I wish I could do that. If, if like that's how it worked, my job would be so much easier. I think if I think if the individual having the reap applied to them reacts very poorly, there, there can be the, the danger is if if you've got a big bend in your leg and then you straighten and turn into it. We saw it with um. Cub Swanson, do you remember on that yeah. um, quintet a few years ago now? Um, Jake Shields reaped him. Jake, mm. uh, see if you can bring that up, Dave. See if you can find that. Jake Shields reaping... Should be up on UFC Cub, Fight Pass. Cub Swanson, yeah. Maybe see if it's on YouTube because, you know, Fight Pass is just so clunky. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, see how you go with it. But um, you're doing a good job over there, baby Dave. Hopefully you guys are enjoying this format. Um, I'm loving having you here to have a chat, Jeremy. I'm enjoying but, it. I'm hoping the format also makes sense for people to watch. We're, we're kind of switching between our individual cameras and the overall camera. So I hope the um, experience is good for you guys listening. But, um, yeah, anyway, Jake throws a reap in. And it was like Cub maybe hadn't been exposed to that a lot in the training room. And he just aggressively turned the wrong way. And he just popped his own ACL. It was... Um, yeah. And even on that, though, like like you mentioned, like jumping guard, for example... Mm-hmm. In worst, like obviously, you know, you don't want to suffer any sort of injury of any kind, like any sort of knee injury. But the disparity in the amount of damage that gets done mm-hmm. is—they're almost not even comparable. Like you're talking about, like jumping guard, you could potentially, like, like say for example, uh, Adam Jones, Craig's brother, like snapped his shin in half, versus maybe a partial tear of the LCL. It's like, like the difference there is, is oh, yeah. not even comparable. Oh, yeah, I'm totally. Did, did you find it, Dave? Or you had no luck there? I can see what you've brought up. Cubs wants it says YouTube at the top there. Cub, but it just looks like Cubs talking on a podcast about it. Podcast tears his ACL. YouTube, yeah, go to the one below it. Uh, that one, click on that, Dave. What's this? Maybe on it, and also bring up another tab. <clears throat> oh, they just got a podcast there. It doesn't look like anything useful. No, nah, that's no good. Um, bring up, uh, just go to YouTube, Dave, and bring up uh, BJJ jumping guard injuries. I don't normally like to watch these videos, but and we're not trying to scare you at home from doing jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu generally is a safe sport, but one of the rules that I have in my training room, there's three main rules, and these are John's rules. No jumping guard, no carny basamis, which are a scissor takedown, and no sagging onto the side of people's knees from body locks. If you had hit of those, knee injuries go down substantially. Oh, I hate even... Anyway, let's see. So this is like two white belts. They're chicks that just want to do some jiu-jitsu and have some fun, and I'm assuming this goes bad. I can explain why, or maybe you can explain, Jeremy, what happens. Um, we'll just have a look. But it's always the same sort of thing. Yeah, because you're going to generally see, like, the person either oh, y- no. go through the side of their knee like that or go through the front of their shin. Yeah. And Oh, no. So her right knee just completely hyper. It's like, it's like, an, it's like an explosive knee bar. Yeah. So what I, happens is their feet, their feet get caught out of position. They can't move them back anymore. All the weight comes down and just... Yeah, I mean, you see dislocated femurs, you see horrible injuries from this. I, I have the same rules in my classes. I actually was just going through that recently, and I, I just said, I said to people, I said, look, I've got like these techniques are banned. Um, 
if you're going to run the risk of putting someone out of training for pen- potentially 12 months, mm. I, if I see you do it, I'm going to send you off the mat for the day. Like, like it's not going to be a, like, hey, don't do that. That's a warning. It's going to be, no, no, you're, you're no, off the no mat play. straight away. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I think that's fair. Like, yeah. otherwise people yeah. don't pay it. Like, like people don't want to listen. Even talking to Keller about it, um, he, he said like, yeah, exactly like what you're talking about with like, you know, the sagging into the side of the knee, like Tani Otoshi. He said the worst injuries he's ever seen mm-hmm. in judo come from Tani Otoshi and like people were responding the same way, uh, the wrong way. He said like, you know, obviously if you take a, like a judo black belt and, you know, someone like sits into it the wrong way, they're not going to have a tough time dealing with it. Like they can like drive into them, take them over. And, but like if you've got someone that's inexperienced, you, you're going to see some pretty serious injuries. Yeah, and it's, it, a lot of the time it's people not knowing, either not knowing how to fall or just not expecting you were taking them that direction, you know. Yeah. They post their foot. So normally the foot is externally posted to the knee. They get dragged. Their foot can't slide along the mat to take the, to relieve the pressure. They get caught on the mat. That's another reason why I don't allow guys to wear wrestling shoes. I think wrestling shoes have a similar thing where they create such a stickiness. Yeah. You see a lot of knee injuries in wrestling and a lot of the time it's things like that. Yeah. Um, I think... If anyone's listening, I think wrestling shoes are straight out stupid. Terrible idea. Stupid. Anyone here, and and, and and there's a bunch of people listening right now going, oh, but I get sore toes. I train jiu-jitsu six days a week. I'm 37 years old. I don't have to wear wrestling shoes to keep training. I, You know, and, and I suppose if you're sparring and kicking people's elbows and then your toes are banged up, I get it. But wearing the wrestling shoes, it's not really, unless you're going to compete in Olympic wrestling, it's not even a relevant piece of uniform. I see people like that have no wrestling aspirations whatsoever, and they're training with wrestling shoes on. I'm like, it looks cool, right? It's like I got my shoes on. I'm I'm a, I'm a wrestler. I'm a wrestler. But like, I, I don't understand it. Like, why would you want to complete? Like, why would you not want to train the way that you're going to compete? Like, it Even just guys in MMA, right? Yeah, I see MMA guys do it, and it doesn't make sense to me at all. They're like, I've seen the Americans do it. I must just wear my wrestling shoes if I'm doing wrestling. I don't get it. I it, just. And they go like, oh, yeah, but I can, you know, I, it's easy for me to, like, you know, shoot takedowns and things like that. It it's like, yeah, yeah, it, You know what's to be easy? Is. Give, get a gun. You just shoot him. Yeah. It's easier. Just drop him on the ground. It's I like mean, you, you can't use the gun in the fight, but it'd be good in training, right? Yeah. And so, like, what's going to happen then when you go and compete? You don't have the wrestling shoes on. You're like, oh, I actually have no drive from this position. It's like, yeah, you probably mm. should have trained without the wrestling shoes on. And then you would have worked this out, not in the ring. Mm. Especially when you get into grappling exchanges and... Um, you know, we're talking about picking up, um, like even ankle picks. Ankle picks are different without shoes on as they are yeah, with shoes on. Totally changes. Such a different. I can connect myself with two on ones to shoes, and basically, you're not clearing your foot. You know, we know super slippery guy points. Sometimes they slip feet. Yeah. Yes, you should be. And like, like even if it's not wrestling, like like jujitsu, it's like how easy is it to heel hook someone wearing wrestling shoes? It's just right there. You have like. Mm. Like you know, you get you like just reach through and just cup the heel, yeah. and you get enough rotation. I could just do a shit heel hook, and st- like it's going to be easy. Do you remember the old pancreation days? Oh, I I I wonder if like those high knee boots almost make it look worse because they almost look like they they don't quite twist as perfectly. But at the same time, I'm like, I wonder if that's just wishful thinking on my part because some of those leg locks some look bad. rough. And there was some bad breaks because guys like either didn't know what they were in. Did you know they were they had a funky rule about gra- you grab the ropes like pro wrestling and stuff? There was, oh. I think I want to say I could be wrong. Um, my iPhone just told me I've got to stand up. No, my iWatch, Apple Watch. No, I'm sorry, man. I'm busy. Um, I, I want to say there was a rule because uh, Elvis, my coach, fought in pancreation against Frank Shamrock. Yeah. And there was some funky thing where there was like grabbing the rope. I can't remember it. It's it's an odd. Um, because this would have been fighting in Japan then, correct? It was. Yeah, yeah. like they Shudo and, they yeah. had like a weird combination of like basically 
professional wrestling. They bring up um, bring up like Pank Pankrace Shudo Japan leg locks. Honestly, you can even find a recent match if you want to look up Gabby Garcia versus Ooh. whoever that are. That old woman was that she fought and she's like bouncing off the rope like around the ring like like doing like the full I mean, like that, bounce back was that a work do you think that, that was that a work but they just they just told that old lady to go in and like Gabby didn't get told it was a work but do you think the other girl did what was it called well, the, the, just I look up um, just look up uh, Pancration Shuto Leg Locks Frank Shamrock I don't know you'll find something like that Bath, Bass Bruton used to be in there too yeah, Pank creation. Pank creation. This is the future, people. This is the the children of school now. This is um, Shemrock. Yeah, this is the future. There Shot we go. Bass Root and Best Frank. I mean, we just wanted uh, Ken Shemrock, the original leg lock specialist. Look at that. I think actually, even in the original UFC, um, <coughs> who was it, Frank, that fought uh, Hoist Gracie, was attempting a, a heel hook on him. It was Ken. It was Ken. Attempted yeah, a heel hook on Hoist, um, and he actually defended that like like reasonably well because I think the match before that uh, Ken had won by can, heel hook sorry but can can you for your next grappling match can you wear matching shoes and, and Fluoro? undies and undies I mean that's not a bad wrist that's actually not a bad go back Dave fun fact um, apparently Eddie Cummings um, started playing like didn't believe in outside Ashy originally and it, I think uh, someone had recommended him watch some old Shuto matches where you see like a lot of the Japanese leg lockers weren't applying them from reaps but from like an outside Ashy yeah I mean I look thought, uh, uh, the guy in the green undies he's turning his knee just the wrong direction I mean he's just turning into the heel hook. I mean if he just turned his knee out he, Frank would have never got his heel it's it's funny how depending on when in the last ten years you went back and looked at this match, you would have been like, "That's yeah. like not bad," or yeah. "That's completely terrible." Like, like, I mean, look, it is terrible. I mean, that was a straight, that was just a straight foot lock on his um, on his I, Achilles. Look, Frank looks pretty jacked then, right? I, like, but I'm still impressed for like the times that the, the like when this occurred though. Look, he's going to step over into an outside ashy. Look at this. Oh, Nebo! Oh. oh, the guy's trying to kick him in the face. Oh, he's past a 50-50. See, he wouldn't even know. Oh, he just, just rotated. <laughs> I almost I almost got optimistic then. I thought, oh, maybe he's going to turn his knees to the inside too. He's going to play from like an 80-20. And I was like, nah. I mean, he's the, it, the, what they're causing there is just severe. It seems holding the ropes. They're causing severe lower leg rotation. Yeah. That's a cross body. Uh, that's like a 50-50 straight foot lock that time. The other guy, I don't know what he, oh, he's saying. I'm grabbing the ropes. Look, I think there was a rule about that. So you hear what he's saying to the, see what he's saying to the referee? Frank Shamrock, look at this. Natural. <laughs> I think this was at a time when uh, they were telling the Thanks, fighters Dave. that we will not test you. Not just like they just like didn't mention any clause about like you know testing, but they specifically told them we will not test you well, uh, for drugs. That was, that was Pride's thing. Pride's yeah. thing was like in big lettering specifically. They want the freak show. They want you on steroids. And um, look, you talk to a lot of people. People have differing views. I mean, from a entertainment point of view. It's like at the Coliseum, I want to see the gladiators that are jacked fighting the biggest lines. I don't yeah. like, but if you're an athlete or you're someone that's in the game trying to, you Compete. know, coach people, I mean, you probably want it to. It either needs to be all or nothing, I suppose. Like allowing, basically allowing a degree of cheating is not good. It's either got to be. I think the UFC have got a pretty good testing program now. I think it's as good as you could probably. I've I've heard get mixed it. things about that because. I think one of the issues with drug test, uh, drug testing, like I'm all for like taking steroids out of the sport. 
Um, one of the issues I do I see... you were saying, I'm all for taking steroids. I'm like, yeah, man, we're going to get Jack Jeremy. If I was, I was going to say, if I was on steroids, <laughs> I, I need to get my money back. <laughs> They've been selling you just straight out oil. One of the uh, the disadvantages I see to drug testing or one of, one of the negatives is that it basically becomes then a, a money issue. If you have more money, you can pay for the designer drugs, like you can, you know, mm. like something that yeah, isn't tested for. Yeah. That that's the that's the disadvantage Everyone's I see, and have, actually, they have, have to have a price cap on what you're allowed to spend on your steroid program. Yeah, you've exactly. Got to, you've got to show receipts for your steroids from your dealer. It's like <laughs> I only spent two hundred bucks a week. That's like the limit, right? Yeah, because because then it becomes a matter of like it actually in some ways would almost increase the divide between like upcoming athletes that. Like you know, like they're getting tested, they can't afford the designer, the designer steroids. While you got the guys at the top that probably yep. can afford these things, or just someone that's simply bankrolled, mm. like like can just come through and like smoke, like smoke the competition. That's not a endorsement of steroids, but it's just like this is Jeremy's key features to how to run a steroid program. What I'm saying is, is I am too poor to afford uh, steroids. <laughs> he, what he's saying is he needs a sponsor to get the best steroids. Buy my instructional. It, imagine you just jacked at 90 kilos, like like. Like Tokino, just can't oh. even. You just can't even barely move. Yeah, that car alarm's fantastic. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, it's Excellent. good. It's good that the academy's in the middle of town because you get a lot of people and it's it's kind of convenient for students. But for what we're doing today, I kind of wish we were tucked in the back area somewhere. What are you talking about? I I, I find Who has the car uh, alarms nowadays. Who even have that? <laughs> yeah, I find the screaming of Darrow soothing. Penrith's a special location. It's um. <laughs> I mean, I'm used to it now. I've been here a lot of years, and I, you know, I make a point of not living in Penrith. It's like I love the, the the city for work and and for the things it has, but I, you know, I like to live slightly away from it. But um, look, I can't I can't say uh, enough good things of how much you know it's fantastic. There's such a good group of people out here as far as my student base, yeah. and um, you know, there's not many other big jujitsu gyms out here. So it was like for me, it was like, oh, this is this makes I live here and there's no one else really doing jiu-jitsu and it's kind of just worked out right you know in that regard it's reasonably accessible like uh, for me heading out this way like the the big issue is driving because like you go through a lot of toll gates Mm. things like that but like you're quite close to the train station like it's it's not a bad spot to be it's actually even like you got the shopping centre and things like that around here it's actually not too bad we've got the shops we've got uh, Centrelink Centrelink's very busy here yep I enjoy I go past in the morning and Centrelink when I'm coming to work has a line out the door and down the street and I always think you know, I'm going to work. Those guys are going to work too for their for their um, government dollars. You know, they got to line up. And you ever think about just jumping in line just for the hell of it, just to sort of stand around and peruse, like uh, I, fit in with I, the locals? I really like junkies. They 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 make me smile. I like watching them from a distance, but having to deal with them face to face. You don't um, want to be in smelling distance of them. I don't want to be in smelling distance. I don't want to have to get in a fight with them because they like fighting people. And something people don't know about, probably you're the same. The kind of more martial arts you do, the less fights you have or want to get into. Yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm tired from training. Like, like. Yeah, well, you, you know what it is? You just, I feel like your ego doesn't have that thing where you've got to challenge everyone. Because yeah. we kind of, your ego gets beaten down and equalized and you kind of, it gets like mellowed a bit. And I think we're just, because we're constantly just bashing each other up every day, you just, you've got that output done. I, I, I go back mm. and forth on that because then you do see the UFC fighters that just go and decide to go pick a fight with someone or there's bash their misses. Be, like, gonna be. You, you would hope that of all people, John Jones would have his ego in check, but apparently not. Becoming the, uh, what is it, the light heavyweight champion or whatever he was, like, would, you know, m- make him think that he doesn't need to sort of get into altercations or... I think he, I think he definitely has a substance abuse 
issue, right? I mean, that's what yeah. it is. Like, he seems to be, when he's sober, he seems to be fine. I mean, the, his issue is why does he need to... Is it an addictive personality? I mean, it's people that have... We have addictive personalities for what we're doing. Um, you definitely see people who then apply that also to other areas of their life that is not a positive um, thing they're following. Yeah. Um, what about... Um, did you see... Who's the kickboxer... Um, Oh, his name was right on the tip of my tongue. He uh, he was in Nick Diaz's corner the other day. He's a glory kickboxer. Shilling. Um, Dave, uh, YouTube, um, what's Shilling's oh, first name? Um, he got in a fight in a... In a, in a oh, Topinia yeah. going into some legs there. This I'm going to be mean. The guy with the big nose? Um, Is that the one fights out of Thailand? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know the his, guy. Oh, his, name, his first name's just gone out of... Um, I think, like, trained with him super briefly when we were in Thailand, oh, really? like, 2019. Doing yeah. Um, I think he was just there at the gym, like like yeah. just at like the he, absolute MMA lived, in Thailand. He's lived in Thailand for a while. Um, yeah. Shil- just right, Shilling Bar Fight M- MMA or something like that. Um, what's his first name? I'm totally blanking on it. Oh, sorry, guys. We're going to say... Joe it. Schilling. Was- Joe Schilling. Okay, so Joe Schilling. Go to the, maybe the second one there. It's um, Joe Schilling, KO's guy. <clears throat> so Joe, Joe's like a legit, one of the best Muay Thai fighters in the world. And... Um, this drunk guy, the, the guy in... I mean, first of all, what is this guy wearing? Unless he's come straight from work. And if you wear that to work, I don't know. So he's got a... He's got a this guy clearly is pretty um, intoxicated. And Schilling, who's who's a very high-level... Fo- oh, no. He's just lit this guy up. And the guy's, lit, like, knocked out on the ground. So... Um, oh, I remember reading his reaction. I, I saw this, and so I remember seeing his reaction. Yeah, he said like the guy was coming past and making comments. He but was I- saying things like the guy was saying racial comments to other people, and and then was was kind of like saying stuff to Joe. And I mean, that guy just picked the wrong guy to, to yeah. be a douchebag to. Because <laughs> is Schilling was he Jewish or anything like that? Like, he was making uh, some comments to him as know. well. Like I don't know what it is, but. Um, so you're saying MMA fighters like that guy. And here's the thing, right? I suppose everyone has a line of what they're willing to accept. Like he said, that guy was obnoxious the whole night. Now, from my point of view, though, I mean, what I think to myself there, if I hit that guy, I mean, most guys that know to punch, if you know, you hit a guy who's not ready, you're probably going to hurt him. Yeah. I, I'm always considering, like, if he hits his head on the ground, that's a hard surface. I mean, that guy could die. and I can't justify killing a guy because yeah. he said a name to me. Like, so... Yeah, yeah and you don't, don't know, know what sort of, tricky. like... like what is, I think there's actually even like a legal precedent for it in the US like like I, it's a thin skull rule something like that uh, just this idea of like if someone's got a pre-existing condition and you get into an altercation with them and they die like like some rules like related to that but it's like even if it's like you know you're not legally at fault in a situation like that it's like still it weighs on your conscience and it's just not worth yeah, getting into not ideal. how do you think that'd go down for you and I we'd have to like sit down into a seated guard and then like challenge him to come over to us and then we'd with the heel hook him if he walked near us. That'd well, be I'd pretty pr- cool, right? I'd probably get taken out by all the needles that are on the ground in uh, the real world. <laughs> and what is it? The needles and the concrete would take me out? Yeah. Sometimes we find needles out the back from the uh, from the uh, ladies that work at Breathless, actually. You, you know, you mentioned, like, jumping guard and, like, like kind of basami and things before. I remember I, I posted about on Instagram recently just about, like, I actually think it should be banned in competition even at a high level. Just it's like you even see at a high level guys just jump through the side of someone's knee and cause serious uh, injury. Someone's response to that was, yeah, but scissor takedown is such a good technique for self-defense. And I was like, please, oh. please tell me how. Oh. Did, <laughs> you, did you get more out of your mouth of that or not? Got no elaboration. 
Yeah. They just went on to the next thing and like argued about some other other I've nonsense. Never, I've never thought about jumping a Carnivus army if I get an old. So maybe when I go to Centrelink and I have a chat with my friends down there. Yeah, Carnivus army. I, I yeah, like I, I love the thought process behind that. It's like, hmm, let's go from a standing position where I'm I'm relatively safe. I can back away. I, I and jump in the air, hope that I don't hit my head on the ground, and then just potentially end up like underneath several people. Hmm. Like, that's an interesting... You should have elaborated with that guy. Like, I, I wanted more out of him, but yeah. he, he had, like, other arguments about, like, why, you know, the... Take- I mean, this is back to the judo. Just a little Kosodogari and just dump him on his back and they'll be on top. It's probably a better option. Yeah. So, do you think there's not a place for it at, at the ADCC level? The, the issue I have with it is that, essentially, the worse you are at the technique, the more effective it becomes. And I can put a lot of confidence in, like, you know, my ability to practice that technique, but I put zero confidence in anyone else to actually put that same amount of, like, like effort into it. Mm. Because it's no consequence for the person attacking it if it goes wrong. They just, you know, they go, oh, I injured the other person. Oh, well, I get to go and go on to the next round. I get to train for the next six to 12 months. While me or my end of things, zero opportunity to tap. It's going to potentially blow out my knee. Um purely because they could just do like a cool leg lock entry. I, I think it's a very effective technique. What do you think about there being onus on, on an individual, you know, in a standing position of having to be aware of that that's a possibility and keeping themselves... Like if I uh, if I pick up a single leg on someone who wants to hit Kani Basamis, now I have to consider that that's a, you know, that's an extra... It's, it's kind of like we just talked about it with judo. If you start to water the rules yeah. down, do we get away from what we love about the thing or about the martial art? Yeah, and like it's it. I'm on the side of removing it from the sport, but I can also see negatives to doing that because I I don't want to go down that route of like okay, well this is unsafe, and then we we remove the next most unsafe thing. Yeah, it's like uh, you know choking someone across their jaw. Ah, oh, you know, it's a bit unsafe. We'll cut that out. So now nobody can get a back strangle because all the guy's got to do is put his chin down. Because right? I think that's the case in judo. Actually, you have to have the lapel underneath the neck, otherwise, um, like you can't go over the face or anything like that. I think like that is actually and a rule in judo. Like nearly, I mean, you see some some good sleeps but you'll see a lot of them where just nothing nothing happens they just chill out what is it i mean have you seen in judo it's like the referees just fucking hate the competitors dave bring up um judo judo strangle put to sleep or something like that the referees like the guy gets put out unconscious and the referees stand there like you know get the fuck up what are you doing you're in the way like it's 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 a weird thing isn't it it's it's I'd say like embarrassing. Are they to not touch them or something. What's the game? It, it seems like it's like embarrassing the the competency of judo refing when it comes to any level of grappling. Here we go. So, how long does this go for? So she's got a clock strangle in here, and they're like no one ever taps for some reason. So sometimes they're out for like a substantial period of time. That I think that gauze out already. I would say from the look of that body. Yeah, she's not retaliating. She looks like a corpse. And look, the ref's like, all right. Uh, yep. Well, yep. Yeah, we'll call the match there. I guess she's naturally in the recovery position there already. Yep. Oh, she's up. I, I thought he was just going to give the other girl the win. Oh, there must be a few, is there? Because yeah, you see, um, they go straight into strangles from throws because they've already got the lapel grip, right? This is another another clock strangle. And I find girls are more savage than we are. They're, they're oh, less yeah. likely to tap. They just they absolutely refuse. Yep, she's out. Look at the position of her left leg. That's not a conscious person. Oh, no. Is her oh. hand moving? Yeah. What? I mean, that doesn't look ideal, right? They're definitely out at this stage. 
Yeah, you can see like that that right foot there. It's <laughs> Oh no. Have you seen on Instagram that uh Valhalla Club? I think both Ari and Hope are on there as referees that oh, have yeah. borderline let oh. someone die in a match. Bring it up, Dave. Is, is that, do they have something on YouTube or not? Yeah. I, I think it's just Instagram, but you should be able to bring up the post on Instagram. Um, it's Valhalla Club. I mean, look, that girl's still unconscious. I think if you just go to Google and like look for the page, you'll be able to uh, find it. That's what is it called? I think it's like if you put in like Valhalla Club BJJ Instagram, you should be able to find it. And it's just, yeah, there you go. Maybe that's it. Do we have to log in? Oh, just, no. If you log in there, will that... Um, yeah, that should just... Yep. Is that going to work? No. Oh, that's all right. We'll, we'll, we'll just leave it. But there's, uh, yeah, so, some great match footage of just someone borderline dying and, and the ref hasn't stopped it yet. Or, you know, the ref's looking the other way while, like, the action's going on. Like, I, and it, it's tough because they're in a tough position. You're running, you're refereeing, at, like, say, like a grappling industries and you're standing there for about four hours at oh, least. And, and the rest. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and I like, refuse you, to referee anymore. It's, it's just, for a while there, I'd do it to help because I'm like, I want to give back to to the, the, the community that kind of helped me get to compete as well. But then... After you get through 10 white belt matches. Uh, white, the white, and look, I understand we need to have competitions. For, I get it, but I don't want to have to watch you grapple. Yeah. I, I don't even want to have to watch my own white belts grapple. I want to shut my eyes and just tell me tell me what happened. Yeah. Um, that's just that's just me. But uh, I, did a, I did a grappling industries once and it was the one they did that was no time limit. Oh, yeah. Which overall I thought was a... A, a cool concept. It was like, look, most people aren't going to go that long. Guys are going to get tired. Something's going to happen. But there was, it was like there was a couple of guys there that day that either just wanted to have long matches or just didn't have the ability to actually finish each other. They didn't know enough finishing techniques to finish each other. And I refereed a match that took an hour and a half between two white belts. Oh, my God. Halfway through the match, I got so sick of it that I had to ask my friend to step on from the other mat, take over so I could go to the bathroom and come back and it was still going. And, like, that was not good for anyone. It was it was like this same guy had a few matches that day that went up in the hour club and it was just, I don't know, I think he just didn't have finishing ability. He, the cardio was very impressive though. Look, it I... was like the output wasn't. It was a lot of just laying and there was no... It, it, you were kind of looking for reasons to disqualify people at that stage because it's just, it's just bad. I, like I like no time limit matches, but when we're talking like actual high level black belts, mm. like I think you would, but I still think there needs to be a degree of, um, you can't just have straight out stalling or else, like people don't want to see you both just stand there and not even go near each other. Like yeah. that's not advantageous to anyone, not you two, not for people watching. I think not giving a time means. It's an interesting concept because now the only way this finishes is either I give up or you give up. So I think there's a very interesting mental aspect to it that, that there's not in a normal match. Yeah. I mean, plenty of guys can be like, oh, he got two points on me. He didn't really beat me. He got two points. Whatever. Yeah, you can, you can justify things. The, the moral victory that people uh, sort of people give themselves. Do people yeah. do it all the time. But for you to go either I quit or just he absolutely got me, that th- that's very definite. So I do like it. You couldn't have every match like no. that. Um, yeah, yeah, Gordon had a couple of long. Gordon and Keenan was a long one. Oh, was that, that's the one that always stands out in my yeah. mind. And I really, I actually like like to rewatch that match. Like it's a really interesting match. Like I feel like all the way through it. But 
it's still like 90 minutes of like two people grappling with each mm. other and it, that can be tough like ADCC like the finals can be really tough when they have a 40 minute match yeah. and not a whole lot is happening like I think the classic example is like Cabrini and Huffer Mendes where they did 40 minutes of shit wrestling yeah that sounds great doesn't it yeah Huffer Mendes never submitted in competition what do you think about that never sum- Man. So never submitted in competition I I don't even know what to say about that because that's just so ridiculously impressive. Like even for the guy that competed at the level he did, I mean, it's yeah, at at the age that he did it, and also across like uh, both gi and no gi jiu jitsu, just like he he really was like the person who could do it all. He's almost um, the only real thing that uh, he had against him was the fact that he couldn't do absolute division because he competed at about sixty six kilos. Um, I, I think he would have even I think greater he notoriety. Some weight to get to sixty six. I yeah. think he was probably he's probably a bigger individual than you, and you compete at sixty six. Yeah, well. I was going to say he's like me, but well, same build as me, I believe, but like actually has muscle on him. Mm. Wonder how he got that muscle? Do you think, Jeremy? There was a lot of um, accusations over the years made, wasn't there? A lot of praying. Yeah, a lot of praying. Jesus is good right. like that. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, um, so ADCC. I wanted to talk about. We, it's an it's finally ADCC year next next year. Next it was year. meant to, meant to be this year. It was meant to be this year, and um, you know all the COVID bullshit. And uh, finally, we've got trials happening, and we've got the American trials happening in a couple of weeks. I think it's about two weeks out. Yeah. I think it's seven hundred and something competitors registered, forty odd competitors, which is yeah. which is fantastic. Absolutely stacked divisions. I think uh, there's one hundred and twenty five people registered at was it sixty six kilos maybe. Oh, really? So normally 77 is the stack division. It might yeah. be 77 that has got 120, 25 competitors. Because uh, last... Oh, actually, no. I think 66 is the 120-something, and it's like 200-something at 77. That would make sense. Because last time, um, Jason Rowell competed on the West Coast, uh, on the East Coast. He competed both. But and on the East Coast the... trials, it was a division of, I want to say, about 80-odd people. He had to, had to have six matches to be able to win it. He mm-hmm. ended up losing the final by, by points, but he... Um, he had to have six matches. Like that's a. Mm. There's a certain skill to just maneuvering your way through a tournament that I often think about and try to talk about with my students because I find super fights nearly a little easier. Because yeah, I, see, I find like, it easier to prepare for. I also think to myself, it's it's like it's one guy. I know who he is. Yeah. Like when it's a tournament, you, you really sometimes you don't even know who it is, and there might be some random stud in there that you don't even know. I mean, it, it's unlikely at the kind of level we're competing at, but yeah. You generally you, you kind of know the guys, but you go in there's a blue or purple. There's some guy there that just is a killer you didn't even know, and there's a match that was harder than you thought it was going to be. Or yeah. it's hard to continually. And there's also that thing of you see your opponents doing their matches, and you can easily be like, Jesus, he look, Jesus, he beat that guy. But and you also you know it. You, you're like you, those sort of things don't come up in super fights as much, you know. Oh. I wonder how much of that is down to individual um, mentality and, like, the ability to cope and, like, I guess, like, process that sort of information. I I was having a conversation uh, with Ross Nichols recently, a high-level competitor, like, high-level black belt out of the UK, qualified for ADCC. I think he fought JT Torres opening round to a decision, which I think is very impressive. Like, Mm. JT is absolutely... like yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, And he's the complete opposite. He actually prefers tournaments. And I wonder if that's just down to the ability to, like your ability to focus on other people versus your ability to focus on yourself. Like, when I prepare for super fights, I, I focus quite a lot on the other person and, like, I study all their matches. Um, but I can, like, I, I feel comfortable doing that. 
while it might be people feel more comfortable not looking at their opponents at all and like focusing on themselves and maybe it makes it mm. easier mentally to tackle like a tournament format as well as probably other things related to cardio and uh yeah i mean you got that and, and your particular well, you strategy have the, the longevity of having to go start early in the day and there's also just the fatigue you have that people don't consider like yeah. let's say six matches you got up that morning who knows? Maybe you didn't sleep as well. There was, you know, a bit of restlessness. You know, you've got a big thing, to, especially ADCC trials. It's it's a, it's our Olympics, mm-hmm. so all these things you try not to put pressure on yourself, but just due to the nature of the fact that it's happening, is going to put a bigger degree of pressure than you just coming to the gym that day. Yeah, you know, so you're already a bit tired, and then you start your first match in the morning, and you work before you know it. Like ad- we know, adrenaline will make you tired more than anything else. But yeah. at the end of the day, when you've got to have your biggest match, the one that matters. You're tired. You, you know, maybe your foot sore. You got popped earlier in another match. Like, yeah. I really take my hat off to people that can go through a long tournament and just continually just provide the goods. Um, yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. Rather than going to winning one, the winning one match. You know. Yeah, I agree. Like, I, I find like tackling like a super fight just, yeah, like much easier. I, I find it easier to like rationalize to myself that you know this person has nothing he can throw at me and surprise me. But as you're making your way through a competition, like as you said, you can be looking at the other guy, but you haven't seen all the other matches that guy had. He might have something in his back pocket for you, and I, I think, I, I think, tackling a tournament, you need to have a, a more airtight game potentially. Like I think super fights, you can almost go in and prepare a very specific strategy for a particular opponent. Mm. While I think tournaments, you need to be a lot more well-rounded, and like it's it's almost like a balancing act. And you you see it sometimes with a. Uh, specialized competitors that go into a tournament where like maybe they blow through a couple of opponents but then they got caught up in another like another area where the other person yeah. might not have even been particularly good at that area of the game but like the specialist has like a complete deficiency um and and that makes it tough yeah so adcc's i mean it's more popular than ever before jiu-jitsu is more popular than ever before but the way that adcc is putting together these tournaments now it's exciting it's a big show like i remember competing in the trials in 2011 i want to say 2010 it was in melbourne yep and um there was like kit dale and um uh heap of other guys down there and i remember it was just in a basketball court there was a couple of mats it was like when i look back at the footage just like it happened in the 1920s it's ridiculous and then you look at even to what it is now i mean our trials are going to be pretty pretty busy and there's going to be some really good grappling um, I know you don't want to make predictions because you're, you know, you've got your finger in a few pies as far as academies. Yep. But um, you know, who are we looking at to watch out for for maybe the divisions? Are you willing to talk about that or? Uh, I this one where I feel like I can say, I think undeniably so, seventy seven division Ethan Thomas. Mm. Like, like I think that's the one where I look at that and I, I don't even think it's up for debate. Like, even if you like have like. You know, people you're friends with and things like that. Like, it, it, I, I think the other divisions, like, th- th- there's more, there's more wiggle room on it. Like, I could still, like, I could make predictions on other divisions. I, I think Ethan for seventy seven, mm-hmm. um, is, is it? Yeah, I, I, uh, well, Ethan's one of. It's weird saying he's one of my students. He's a fellow black belt with me here at Sydney West. I don't know if calling him a student's the right thing, because he's just so fucking good. Like, hmm. um, but uh. You know, I'd like to maybe think of myself as Ethan's coach. I'm pretty high on him, but a lot of coaches are high on their own individuals. But even if I'm being quite open-minded, which generally I am, I think he's got the tools to do very well. Yeah. Um, good competitor. You know, he's young enough. He's in, the, in his prime. He's a legitimate black belt. He's good at wrestling. For ADCC, it, it just ticks all the boxes. Super hard to submit. Yeah. Um, 
and, and that's sort of my thought on why I I'd pick Ethan for that division. Like I, I just mentioned, tournament format. I think you need to be very well rounded. Like you, you can't have any sort of skill that's like got like a, a massive hole in it. Ethan isn't just that though. Every single skill that he has in the sport is at an incredibly high level. Like his submission game, his ability to pin people, uh, mm. with, like like in jujitsu, his wrestling. Um, it's all just at a, like a superb level. Um, and he has the ability to basically change his strategy for every single opponent. And, and yeah, I, yeah, I'm I'm excited to see where he goes. Um, he's always just he still hasn't had that big breakout. Mm match like um you know you talk to you talk to people in uh australian jiu-jitsu and they know your name they know lachlan they know the certain guys are like oh yeah th- these are the guys there's still a lot of people that don't know who ethan is um yeah they hear of this kind of mythical there's this guy getting around that's that's good um but but i think he's still got to show it and i think that's these trials are going to be interesting for that i agree i agree with that like i think there are people that are in the know about ethan but i i think there's going to be a lot of people very shocked at trials about that i remember um when i first came to sydney like maybe nearly two years ago at this stage or a year ago at the very least yeah um giles was messaging me and he said like oh have you rolled with ethan yet like how's that going and it's like terrible i'm getting bashed <laughs> it's terrible it's terrible <laughs> i roll with him every day and it doesn't get any better like i some days he doesn't submit me as much but i'm telling you just it's just miserable his game is he's crushing it's um it's a it's very you know and i'm not giving away anything that uh, other people haven't seen but uh it's gonna be it's gonna be and look there's there's legit that that 77 division is legit there's, it's the toughest division yeah. i think because basically you're taking like average built like like probably the largest demographic of males would would like like sort of like that demographic there and then they're all jacked like you're basically taking yeah. like any average built man like that like makes up like the largest demographic of men and then like they've all just got like a layer of muscle on them yeah <laughs> which is why i'm staying at 66 tell me about it so who who we got going at 60 so are you looking to compete still is that what is that what the plan is at this stage um yeah so i've i've had a lot of troubles with injuries over the last 2 years i've only really competed once um in that 2 years against canon um, I'll do 66 for this trial. Which you uh, hooked up a beautiful... Actually, Bray, Dave, bring it up. Um, where are we going to find footage of that? Is that on YouTube? I think it's on YouTube. It was um, a nice uh, triangle set up from a seated guard from memory. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, well, from a from a knee shield guard, like a, a Kimura into a, an ankle triangle Americana, basically uh, going over the top there where you'd go in towards like, you know, like a belly down arm bar, mm-hmm. but instead uh, a back step with a right leg. I think you'll see like Nicky Ryan. Fr- Why are we looking at motorbikes, Dave? Jeremy Skinner versus Lucas and no, motorbikes. Uh, Cannon. Cannon, not Lucas Cannon. I, I think I competed against Lucas four or five years ago. Maybe maybe speaking six of, years ago. Speaking of Lucas Can uh, Lucas Cannon, that guy is a monster. Have you trained with Lucas I, yet? Not for like lo- not for a long, long time. Is he looking at doing trials? I don't know. He's he's such an unassuming guy, he he kind of makes out like he's not very good. But he is um He's really, really good. He could go in the trials. Now, he's got that Unity um, game where they play De La Hiva and they invert and they use bolos. So, it's a very specific type of game. Yeah. Um, but I'm telling you, that guy, for anyone that doesn't know that he's... I think in the Gi, he's a brown belt still, but, I mean, he could be a black belt. Um, I think I in the like Gi, he might be one of the best guys in Australia. I, and I feel like at this stage, like, the belt almost doesn't even matter for competition, which I think is, like, the way it should be. Mm. Um yeah, yeah, it's a tricky one. Is, is he working his wrestling? Do you know? No, so well, not 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 a lot. Um, I know he he does train with the guys down at Sydney Wrestling Academy. I think it is, but uh, 
I, I don't know specifically. Um, you're not having any luck there? Uh, K, so, so if you get rid of uh, Lucas Cannon, I did actually have a match against Sam Cannon. Kanan Jones, that's his uh, name? Cannon Clark Jones. Cannon Clark Jones. Yeah. Kanan Clark Jones. Which Isaac had a really nice match against at uh, Nogi Welch just recently. Yeah, I mean, look, well, let's not let's not underestimate. We didn't talk about Isaac, but depending on what division he does, I mean, that kid is a stud. Yeah, I, I think he's looking at doing 88, I, I think is the plan. Um, yeah. You've had two matches with him. Three, uh, two long, three. long, lo- two matches long, long time ago. Like, Both victories, right? Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad that uh, Isaac's getting heavier and heavier because I like when we're when we're done wrestling training together, it's it's not close. Like he'll just like pick me up and he can like walk me around like yeah, off I like mean, a high crutch. His skill progression, and that's what people need to remember. Let's say there's still a lot of people out there that are like to come back to Gordon. They're like, ah, oh, Penna Penna submitted him on the back, and it's mm. like, okay, yes, he did. That all credit to him in that moment. Mm. But the rate of progression that people can have if they're mm. doing very good training, they can be. A totally different grappler yeah, in, in, sure. in a year. Totally different. If you're doing good training, you you nearly should be if you're doing things right. So, you know, the rate of progression of people is yeah. phenomenal. You see some of these athletes who are just start athletes and their progression just yeah just skyrockets. I mean, we're seeing that with we're definitely with Isaac. You know? Isaac's just getting better and better and better. And you, you're seeing mm. he's also so he's a brown belt world champion. Uh, you know, he yeah, took that out the other day. Yeah, after getting his brown belt, uh, how long ago? I mean, he he was so Isaac trained here for a, quite yeah, a while. Picked, picked up a lot of yeah, did, did trained for a while, and he was obviously still a purple belt. And uh, I remember saying to him, mate, I mean, you know, you're not a purple belt. I know everyone else knows you're not a purple belt. You're a black belt level. Yeah, what, you know, what are we going to do? And um, he always like he'd been graded. I forget whether John gave him his purple belt no, or no, whether no, uh, um, Leo Aruda in yeah. Adelaide. And 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 I think he always wanted to be graded under John or Craig, right? Yeah. And so I, I didn't, I didn't never graded Isaac. He was here yeah. and he was kind of stuck here. He couldn't get anywhere. So we had this kid who was wearing a, a purple belt for all intensive purposes, but would just give everyone nightmares. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he's been given his brown belt. You could give him a black belt today and Easily. it would make no difference. Like, Easily. Like, like, if you look at his run at Nogi Worlds, like, it wasn't just he won Nogi Worlds. Untouchable. Untouchable. Yeah. He out-wrestled him. He did better jiu-jitsu. Yeah. He scored. He submitted them. Yeah, he submitted. I I think he only had maybe one match where he didn't submit his opponent. Maybe so two he didn't, matches. Didn't submit Kanan and um, maybe two, but that's not always a representation. Like, there's plenty of guys who submit everyone who oh. who, who don't do as well. Kanan was like tough. Yeah. And um, oh, that's not a slide against Isaac yeah, that he yeah. didn't submit to opponents. No, no, no he dominated all yeah. of them. But people might think, oh, that means he didn't do that that well. But yeah, it was super impressive. And in the final, he had this Dagestani dude who'd been training at Marcelo's, who was a very good wrestler. Yeah, um, Isaac I think, took him down immediately. Yeah, submitted him to I, finish. That was such an interesting match going into it because uh, I remember leading up to the match, just like talking to Craig, like as like like in the lead up to Isaac going on for that match, like between that and his semi-finals, and we were, we were talking about that because. His opponent, uh, a Ukrainian competitor that had won various wrestling He's competitions. Ukrainian. He wasn't Dagestani, was he? No, no. He'd won um, a lot of competitions, though, in Dagestan for wrestling right. in, in both, I think, like Dagestan and like what happens, Russia. Sorry to jump in on you there, but what happens with Dagestanis is there's only so many of them that can compete, like, out of, the, especially when it comes to Russia. Only, yeah. only one can get the, the Olympic spot. So a lot of them go to other countries just so they can get their Olympic spot. Yeah. Otherwise, so a lot of them come from Dagestan. So, so it might be he's actually Dagestani, he but he's be. competing could, out of Ukraine. I thought that's what the case was, but I could be wrong. Yeah. But, um, like, that was a very interesting match because you have this guy with all these wrestling accolades. And, like, going to that match, I'm like, hmm, this is interesting because 
you know, obviously Isaac's been working on his wrestling, but is it going to be at like that level? And really, actually, what I thought it came down to in that match was it wasn't down to the wrestling. It was um, a late stage escapes and whether or not you're going to use escapes that exploited the rules of jiu-jitsu or the rules of wrestling. Like, for example, like Isaac was able to, like, was happy to expose his back to the mat um, in those late escapes um, to not get taken down while uh, his opponent almost, like, didn't want to get sat down to his butt but also didn't want to turn away. Um, and Probably a smart idea against Isaac. Yeah, yeah, but exactly. But in doing that, he got points. Got, yeah, exactly. And yeah. then he got taken down clean in the end. And, and mm-hmm. I think really, like, it came down to those late escapes because yeah. then after that it was pure domination from Isaac. But I, I feel like the, the turning point on that in the in at least the wrestling exchange was who had the better late stage escapes for mm. jiu-jitsu. Yeah, that's a good point. And he, in doing that, I think he kind of broke the guy a little. I think that yeah. guy was like, I nearly had him down and then he, he's up. And then he just took me down. I yeah. think that there was like a mental thing that happened there and it just kind of went downhill from there for the guy. Just broke. Because I feel like he, like, you know, I, I think that Ukrainian through most of his matches was um, really just working his wrestling. I think he had quite a few matches that basically just went to the end and he'd won like on advantage or uh, on yeah. points. I mean, that happens with the yeah. wrestlers a fair bit. Um, so talking about the trials for us, we've got them coming up in um, March. What I'm hearing is is, is early March. And it's going to be in Sydney, which is nice. Melbourne, we've blacklisted Melbourne. Ble- Melbourne's, you've had your chance. You guys are done now. I said for I a long time. people that live in Melbourne, but you guys probably aren't yeah. very happy with how you've been treated down there either. I've said for a long time the trials need to happen in Sydney and not Melbourne. I, I just think there is a much larger culture for competition in Sydney. Um, you're going to have more people showing up. You can actually turn it into a spectator event. I mm-hmm. think the jiu-jitsu in Melbourne... You, you have absolute yeah of course high level gym like, like they've always been the shining light of Australian yeah. jiu-jitsu yeah but if you look at in Melbourne and if you took away absolute there's not really any other gyms there um, that are yeah know. that's always interested me because I don't know the scene there is it like when it comes to tournament time is it kind of absolute in like causing some mayhem generally in 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 the yeah. um there's some the medals there, there's Australian elite team um, which is like a really big gym there but in terms of caliber um they like they they more or less get like the team trophy by having just a lot of people show up. Mm-hmm. So I think really like this kind of like in my opinion anyway, Those only team absolute. trophies are not a good indicator of. I've often talked to um, you know gentlemen that run tournaments and I speak to them and I go, uh, you know, because I'm a I'm a gym owner and it'd be nice to have a trophy that says you're the best team. I mean that's a good a good little award for your um mm. for your hard work and your and, and you know look at like other people look and go oh maybe that's where I should go and train. It shouldn't just be I had the most amount of people that paid money to come and come along. And it definitely shouldn't be I also had like 100 kids compete. Mm. And for some reason, like adults and kids are mixed together. Because as you and I know, a, a kids' jiu-jitsu is a very different thing yeah. to adult jiu-jitsu, you know? Yeah. Um, um, I've always I, found that odd. I, I, I agree with you on that in terms of like what the team trophy should be. Mm. I imagine on the, uh, the, compet- like, sorry, the, uh, the host of the competition side of things, they probably want to encourage like people of to course. just send their full team in and, and like get the team trophy. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that makes sense. But from a you know from a coach's perspective, mm. I feel like an adult specialist division should be worth maybe much more points than than a, a child's division. Uh, two six-year-olds, yeah. both the six-year-olds from the same gym, and no one else was in the weight division, so they took gold and silver. Is worth the same amount. Or more than a, an adult winning a specialist. Like, that doesn't, doesn't make sense as far as or weight. E- or even just have, like, 
the kids' trophy and the adults' trophy. Yeah. Like, just completely separate the two. Yeah. But but for that reason, that's why I think uh, it'd be better off having the uh, ADCC trials in Sydney. I just think you'd be able to get a lot more people around it and yep. you'd just be able to make it a bigger event overall, which is ideally what our trials is going right, to become. You right, Baby Dave? thought he was waving to me over there. Are you getting bored, Baby Dave? How long have we been going for, mate? Hour and a half. Hour and a half. Okay, cool. It's going all right. I'm happy. Um, yeah, so the trials... Um, George Hanlon's putting it together uh, with uh, John Donahue. Yeah. I'm saying that right? Donahue? Yeah, Donahue. Yeah. yeah. So he, John's always had the trials as his kind of thing that he organised. Yeah. And I think he's, in the last few years, brought on George, who runs a lot of different promotions, yeah. runs Subversion, runs... Runs Subversion, runs the um, Oz Sub only, like yeah. runs also the uh, the ADCC Nationals when they're mm-hmm. on. I think George mm-hmm. is really, like, showing he can put together a great event and yeah. also make it a spectator event. So I think, yeah, like, totally. this gives him an opportunity to combine the two together. Yeah. Because that's what we're seeing with, like, the East Coast Trials, for example, and the West Coast Trials is they're making it a spectator event. Like, it's, it's almost like, especially you look at the US Trials, it's almost got as much credibility as like winning ADCC itself. Like if you're going to oh. win like the the American yeah. trials, like the yeah. like we just talked about, like the the numbers that they've got for that event, it almost in some ways might even be more interesting than the actual ADCC because you've got all the up and comers in that mm-hmm. one competition and they're all hungry. And there's a lot of names in there that we know as well now yeah. because of so many more shows being televised. So yeah. look, I think you take out the the West Coast the the East Coast or West Coast trials. I mean that's. You could put that in your Instagram bio. There's yeah. plenty of people. <laughs> I, I kind of laugh at people that, you know, the, the things they'll put in their Instagram bio. It's like, you know, 25-time state champion. Or and, uh, ADCC <laughs> champion, but it's they won the local, like, yeah. nationals. And I've a, seen that a few the, times. And it was the beginner division, and there was them and, like, three other guys. Anyway, look, if that makes you happy, go for it. Put that in your in your bio. But um, don't try to mislead people of, of where, yeah. you know, where your skill sets lie. It's funny, but um, I think if you win the the East or West Coast trial, especially oh, yeah. this time around. Remember, it's very different to what it was making ADCC in 2003 compared to 2022 mm. is is probably a more difficult prospect. Same as fighting in the UFC now as, a, as opposed to back in the day, you know? It was, yeah. a, it was a different thing. It was a different litmus test to be able to make it through. And I think, like, flow grappling's really changed that for the trial specifically. Like, even, like, ADCC itself, uh, like, the actual ADCC Worlds is a lot more accessible now compared to what it was before. But also trials are becoming more and more accessible, so it's just becoming an, an event in its own right. Mm. Well, we were supposed to have two trials, uh, as people probably know, and... Yeah. It just the the Sing- uh, Singapore, right? Yeah. So yeah. they've said it's postponed. Um, the previous ADCC was Japan and Kazakhstan, and the Kazakhstan trials got straight out cancelled. I think oh, like because they just didn't have enough competitors. Yeah, it was I, ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Um. Like, w- I think it was more the issue that there wasn't enough um, international competitors, like like non-Kazakh competitors, going to the trial. So it was essentially like. It was just Kazakhs trials. Uh, yeah, so it was like a few of us Australians that went, and then like the rest of the in, like the entire division was. Kazakhs. Were you part of the guys who were on the plane as it got cancelled? We, we were. It was the night before we were flying. I think it was the night before we were flying out, and like they'd announced that the uh, the trials were cancelled, and it was a whole thing where like I was in the middle of cutting weight at the time, like like I I was dying mm. and and i remember uh, they announced it was cancelled and that very moment i ordered a pizza <laughs> and and so like I, I had the the pizza arrive at my place um i took a bite out of the like like a slice of pizza and then i got a call from giles and he goes 
are we still going to go? Because they might actually still have some invites on offer. So I had to like spit vomit, out the pizza, vomit pizza, vomit the pizza up, <laughs> and then have I have a photo on my phone of like the whole pizza sitting in the bin. Lovely. And like trying not that to cry because like I was, I was so hungry. Oh, that's worse than just not having the food, right? Oh yeah, yeah. like like if like I got a taste of it and I was like, oh, what this is what pizza I'm missing. Was it? I think it was like. I think it was like a four cheese pizza. Like it was just loaded on with imagine like. Just... Imagine how your guts would have felt after eating that cheese oh. pizza. Cheese is rough at the best of times. I I borderline nearly kill myself with the amount of food that I consume after a competition. Like I just like, mm. I remember Japan, like same thing, like the day before. like we'll 66 got... is not an ideal, like it's not ideal for you, is it? It's like but, doable, but neither but 77. Like, no, seven, you're kind of a tweener. You're, you're yeah. somewhere in the middle there, unfortunately for you. Um you know, if they had like a, what if they had like a 70 division, that'd be perfect for you. Yeah, because I, I walk around like anywhere from about like 70 to 73. The heaviest I've ever gotten was um, like 76. But like like that was like, like that was the only time I've ever been that heavy. Um, like even right now, I'm only 70 kilos. Like like lockdown was good to, I was probably the only person through lockdown that didn't put on weight. I actually managed to like lose a kilo by the end of it. Baby Dave sitting behind the screen here has got a big smile. He definitely... Uh, he definitely put on a few kilos. Well, let's just keep that up so you don't do 66. We'll, we'll get you uh, bumped we'll up to 77. Up and he has to compete against Ethan. Or or he does do 66, but the weight cut's going to be that hard for him that he'll just like... He'll be, he'll be sapped. What about one day? He's a, he's a fucking idiot. He um, competed at the... It was the, the ADCC Nationals the time before last they ran one. And um, instead of coming to me and talking to me, like I've had a lot of experience with weight cutting personally and with fighters... And uh, instead of talking to me, he rocks up and um, has the worst match I've ever seen. It didn't even look like it was him. He got he got beaten by this guy who sucked, right? And I'm like, what was that about? And he goes, oh, I haven't drunk water for like a day and a bit. I said, why? He's like, oh, I needed to make weight. So he just, he stopped eating and stopped drinking. He just, he just tried, thought he'd compete and be fine doing this. And I, yeah, the, the, guys, if you're going to cut weight for a tournament, Make sure, one, that the weigh-ins aren't just before you go on because you, you just can't do it. You're not going to compete. Go up a division, at least be full and compete how you can, even yeah. if you're outsized. Or if the weigh-ins are early, do it right. You know, yeah. Don't just fucking not eat and drink. And well, like, I think for trials, like every like the two times that I, I've done it is like I weighed in at like 6 a.m. and didn't have to compete until 9. Like I was like yeah. but there ready to weigh in. How did you find that? That's a three-hour window. That's not compared to like... 24-hour windows we deal with in MMA. Um, guys still can come into the fight nearly a bit dry if you really yeah. suck some water out of them. Like you still would have been a bit dehydrated. Uh, yeah, it was... Yeah, like, like it, I'm not saying it's a smart thing to do. Mm. Um, but your body fat was right down. I remember seeing a photo of you. Oh, I, you looked were, a, I looked disgusting. You were right down. Like, I yeah. don't know what more you could have done. There, there was very little I else I could do. 66 is just not an ideal... No. With your frame, it's just... The the, pro- the problem I I have is that seventy seven I like the like I guess like the weight and power advantage is just like so far against me that yeah and it's tricky I mean we we know just from the training room that just if if your skills are similar that extra horsepower yeah. makes a substantial amount like, of difference like and I'm not like exactly that like like I have like matches where I've like I've given up a lot of weight like I've actually had had quite a few super fights where I've given up about like seven to ten kilos. Um, actually, I can't get a super fight at my weight. It's been really tough. So thank you, George, for putting together the uh, match on subversion against Talos and Suarez. So I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to that, to actually get, getting to compete at my weight. Um, but against, like, yeah, high-level opponents, like, I, I don't want to be giving up that weight. Like, because you feel the difference. 
Mm. Like I, I feel the difference in the training room if I picked out like you know someone at like that you know is about sixty six kilos, someone that's seventy kilos, someone yeah. that's seventy seven. Like I, I can feel the difference between all three of them. There's always just there's a position where we scramble and it, yeah. the stronger guy or the heavier guy can just make things. You've got to get a few battles go your way and before you know it, it keeps going. And um, that's why I say with you, like any success in the training room is often due to a size disparity it, you know it doesn't feel like it um, like that that's one where i'm like this doesn't feel like a size disparity because like yeah you, but there's, I, I, you can, I can feel it i can feel it because i know if i if i'm going with a guy who's um i mean there's not many guys that are my skill level that are 10 kilos heavier that i train with often but you know i know i just know those battles are so much harder you know i've got i've got some of my purple belts who are like 10 15 kilos heavy and it's it's like they can gap a pretty big skill discrepancy discrepancy with their you know with their um with their size and strength especially you got like someone like curtis who can just like yeah pull a submission out of anywhere yeah he's dangerous yeah he's um he's what i'm looking forward to for he, he's a bit of a dark horse in the division because there's there's in the 88 division there's definitely some favorites in there where you go these guys are yeah. tried and tested and they should do very well but uh, yeah, a guy like Curtis is always able to submit anybody. I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Curtis compete because mm. I think he's got like a really interesting style for that division. Yep. Um, and I, exactly as you said, I think he's a bit of a dark horse for it. And, and I don't think people are really expecting... Uh, yeah. Like, like I, I think people that don't know Curtis are going to be quite surprised when he comes in and he, he's going to submit a few people. Yes, yes. And I mean, then it comes down to how much of a big game player you are. And yeah. Some people are big game players, and he's one, you know, we've seen it where there's people who compete better than they do in the training room. Yeah. You know, often he competes, and I'm like, where'd this come from? I'm like, Jesus. And I watch him in the training, I'm like, you suck. It's um, it's so, it's, and I love that. I'd rather a guy who's a big game competitor than the guy who does great in the training room, but then just absolutely can't put it together. And, and like, never find, yeah, because, like, because yeah. at least, like, it's an opportunity for them to find some success in competition and, like, achieve their aspirations as opposed to, like, yeah. you having in your head, like, I can do this, but I something falls short. I can't get it out. Yeah, and that's, there's so many, and that's as a coach, there's so many different ducks to get in a row to actually have an athlete yeah. who who gets to a high level, let alone multiple athletes to a high level. Um, but, look, um, we could keep talking all day, and I enjoy talking with you, but we've um, all this new sound gear. I have to thank um, Matt Morris from MM Inc., I think I'm saying he's, uh, yes, I did. I did say That's he's... a thumbs up. Yeah, so I got a big thanks to Matty. He, he's the guru behind, uh, if anyone here has watched Subversion, he um, puts together, Dave might even be able to bring up Matty's. Um, he puts together, if you watch the Subversion cards that we run here out of Australia, the production is as good as a flow grappling event. That's yeah. all Matt Morris. It's all on him and, and his crew. Um, I called Matty yesterday and said, look, I'm doing the podcast with Jeremy. I want to do things a little differently. And next thing you know, I've got a setup here that looks like we're on a movie set. So huge thanks to Matty. And um, you know, I want to wrap it so he can take all his gear away. But yeah, look, thank you so much for chatting today. Thank it's, you for having uh, me on. Again, I feel like we could just keep going and going and going. Um, maybe we'll do another one. Maybe we, I hope know, so. we keep going from there. But yep. I think there's lots of, as we're getting out of the lockdown now, I think there's lots of exciting matchups coming up um so what we've got to look forward to for you going forward sure so i have um at this stage three uh three competitions coming up uh so the most recent uh like the soonest one will be uh the bowl super eight mm-hmm. um which will be november the 21st so that's a that's not long at all yeah yeah so so that's very soon um it's at uh 80 kilos unfortunately but right. like like uh, i couldn't turn out an opportunity to be on that card it's yeah. a eight person bracket uh with some uh, really high level black belts from all around australia uh 
competing against each other. There's going to be quite a few super fights uh, on that as uh, well, like leading up to it. My first super fight actually was on uh, the previous yeah, I rem- bowler. I remember, I remember it, yeah. Who'd you go against that night? I went against uh, Josh, I'm totally blanking on his last name, uh, 10th Planet Black Belt uh, oh. from Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that was my first super fight. And uh, Craig fought on that. I, and the main card, like, there was Ben Hodge on there as yeah, well. Was that, was that where um, DJ kind of just pointed everyone and Craig lost yeah. in the fight? Was that the one? Yeah, yeah. essentially, yeah. Yeah, it was a bit... Yeah, it was a bit of a shame, but yep. Um, and so on that as well, um, my teammate uh, Mikhail is going to be rematching Talis and Suarez. Uh, oh, yeah. It's going to be a no-game match this time, so that's going to be really exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Um, shortly after that, I will in January, I'll be um, on a four-person uh, sort of mini bracket on the M16 Open. So it'll be myself, uh, Rod Costa, Mikhail Yahaya, and Ash Williams coming over from the UK. Yeah, lovely. So that'll be really good. And then Have just you competed off- with Ash before you got mm-hmm. against him? No, I haven't. No. So, so Ash and I are friends, and like we've been trying to put together a match between uh, him and I for a long time because he has a similar problem uh, to me, which is he, he's struggling to find opponents because mm. like there's not just not enough. Like once you get to the like yeah. like you start making your way up, like the viable opponents like a fewer and fewer. Especially within a weight class that's reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like in exactly that because Ash doesn't want to give up weights for super fights, yeah. and I don't think he should. So we've been trying to put that together for a while. So hopefully him and I match up because like I think that'd be really interesting. Um, as well as I'm actually just looking forward to getting some training in with Ash. Like that's mm. I almost prefer that over the actual match, but like like yep. that'll be good too. And then uh, we're looking at February uh, for Subversion, where I'll be uh, the main event uh, going against Talis and Suarez. So Lovely. that'll be really exciting. Yeah. So hopefully I can pick up some interesting uh, uh, sort of insights into Talison's Nogi game after Mikhail. his match with Mikhail. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be bolos, and we've seen we've seen him do stuff before, right? Yeah. It's predominantly um, bolos the, and back takes. Yeah. The uh, I think the classic pro up in Queensland. Talison's had two matches. I think. Uh, uh, Aaron Blackie and Stuart Nickel he's had matches against and those gave a lot of insight those were both really interesting matches uh, mm. Talison brings something different to Nogi mm. uh, something very different to his uh, his gear game so I like it's one of those matches that I've got coming up where like I'm trying not to sort of like fangirl on it because like I'm excited about oh, the yeah. match yeah like I like I That's taking cool. like a step back looking at the match going like this is a match I would actually want to see yeah it's a fantastic matchup. Two very different styles of I mean, grappling. Subversion is, uh, I think it's, if it's not the very best in Australia, it's right there with, I mean, as far as for how many cards they put on, especially in the last, yeah. you know, um, little period of time. So, yeah, it's pretty pretty good um, show. And that one's going to be at, at a big live event too. So, yeah, so yeah. it'll be nice to have Subversion return to having like the big uh, live audiences. Mm. Um, just with COVID and the restrictions on capacity, the last few events they've been yeah. streamed to a very high quality. Um, but you don't have necessarily the same energy as when you've got all those people in the room. Yeah. And to make these things viable and be able to continue going, you kind of need people yeah. to go and support and buy tickets. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I, I want to make sure the event keeps happening. So like the best way to do that is with uh, with ticket sales. Yeah, for sure. So if you're in Sydney or even if you're not, uh, when that event comes around, be sure to uh, get your tickets so you can come see it live. Yeah. If not, watch the live stream. For sure. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. You're awesome. a good man. Thank you. Thank you, mate.